Good morning, everyone. The Board of Supervisors planning meeting for March 9th, 2023 is now in session. Will the clerk please call the roll? Supervisor Tam. Present. Supervi President Miley. Here. Supervisor Carson excused. Supervisor Halbert. Present. Will you all please join me in the Pledge of Allegiance? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic Thank you very much. May I have a motion to approve the meeting minutes from December 22, 2022? Uh, from December 8th of 2022. Moved by Miley, seconded by Tam. No. You're going to abstain? Yes. We'll I have to approve these later. Okay. Well, then we won't take that one up then. We have no closed session. The next item is a consent calendar. Is there a motion to approve? I'll move approval, but Mr. Chair, I have a question on number three. Very good. Very good. Do we have any public comment on the consent calendar? Yes, we do have a speaker for consent calendar. Please recognize the speakers for two minutes. Thank you. Hi, this is Kelly. I didn't know you were going to drop the closed session, but um, I do have a problem with this agenda. The um, the closed session, every time you guys, uh, the, this board of supervisors, your board thinks that you can go into closed session at the drop of a hat. And because of the way your agendas are written, um, every time you go into a closed session, I, I would hope you have lawyers there, you know, maybe the clerk of the board, maybe even the supervisors who've taken Brown Act training um, year after year after year, uh, session after session after session. And maybe you would know that before going into closed session, you need to have public comments. And maybe you could write that down on the agendas. Um, and then you, maybe you could write the agendas with sufficient specificity, as described in the Brown Act, such that people could figure out what the item is in the closed session. Um, you're always, I mean, every county I know of is uh, significantly exposed to litigation. So it would be more uh, more helpful if you could provide some specificity there. Thank you. Question on item three, Supervisor Tam. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, so I uh, just need some background on uh, particularly the abatement issues in Hayward Acres and what led to them and why couldn't um, the people that were listed in our matrix pay the fees and what was the notification process to the folks that uh, were asked to pay and uh, was the notification letter clear and understandable, particularly if um, there was a language barrier or whether there's a disability or a financial burden that people couldn't maintain and were people notified ahead of time and how many times were they made aware of this situation? Good morning, supervisors. Uh, Edward Labayag, our code enforcement manager, is luckily here. He can speak to those issues if you want to step to the podium. Good afternoon, board members. Nice to meet you in person, Supervisor Tan. Um, so uh, I think what's before you is a um, uh, for the approval of the liens because lien, uh, fines and fees that have been imposed on property owners 
that were duly notified about violations and they have not abated it. Um, and we've gone out there to reinspect and they were still not in compliance. At that point, when we do a reinspection, we do impose the, the fines and fees, and they have a right to appeal those fines and fees uh, 10 days after we've issued it. And if there's no appeals filed by the property owner, then we move it forward to the board for lien approval. So that's what's before you today. So um, when we do submit our fees to our finance department, they uh, will send a, uh, an invoice to the property owner to pay it within 30 days. If they don't pay it within the 30 days, then it becomes a request to lien, put, put those fees as a lien on the property. Are, are these property owners aware of why they need to pay the lien? Have they, are they at the reinspection site? Oh yes, our, our process uh, starts with the initial inspection, letting them know what the violations are, and that, uh, that if they fail to uh, abate the violation with a certain time period, that fines and fees will be imposed. And then when we do our reinspection, uh, we let them know we've inspected, you're still not in compliance, we're imposing these fines and fees, you have 10 days to appeal. And they're present at those reinspections? Uh, they can be, yes. Sometimes we're, um, the inspectors will arrange um, an appointment with the owner, but not all the time. It's, for example, if there's um, high weeds or trash, we don't really um, need to have the uh, property owners there. But most of the time, we do have communications with the property owners, and um, you know the inspectors negotiate abatement. Uh, a lot of our cases, we try to get uh, voluntary compliance. So we talk with the owner. If they have a tenant, we try to make sure that they understand what the county's ordinances uh, are about and what they need to, to do to meet compliance. And if they need more time, we negotiate that with them. And uh, these are just when, when we've already did our due process with notification and we're not getting compliance, so we have to impose these fees. Uh, when these inspectors go out and, and they do meet with the owners, do your inspectors um, find that there's a, a language issue or is there, uh, are they in a financial burden situation? Uh, when, when our inspectors are out there and, and they feel like there's, even, even uh, at, the, at the stage where we do intakes, if we know there's a need for uh, translation, I do have two inspectors that are, um, that, that speak uh, Spanish and uh, Chinese. So if it goes anything beyond that, we do use the services of the county where uh, we can uh, call in a number and, and get translation, but we rarely have to go that route. A lot of times we're able to just take care of it uh, within our inspection group. Okay, I, I appreciate that background. It's just that uh, by the time it gets to us and there's a lien, uh, we want, I just want to make sure that the property owner or the the person that was uh, informed ha was that it, this information was clear and reasonably explained. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, no, great questions, uh, and I I think if we continued to see people unable to pay, we should find some ways to work with them and, and provide uh, weed abatement services, for example, or or whatever else. Um, but anyway, I'm sure that we'll keep that on our radar. Yes. With that, I'll um, see if we have any 
Did we take public comment on the consent calendar? I don't think so. Any public comment on the consent calendar? Very good. Thank you. Greg, you're on the line. Please unmute your mic. I had a question. Can code enforcement proactively go out to properties? Did you hear me? This is Greg. We can hear you. Go ahead. Okay. So can code enforcement proactively go out to properties at the request of property owners? Do, do you want me to answer that question? So yeah, right this, is, this is on the agenda, and um, if it's appropriate to answer, and if it would be helpful to answer, I think it would be okay to answer. Uh, yes, uh, this is Ed Labayag. I manage the code enforcement division. So uh, typically when a property owner is calling us to do a, an inspection of their property, uh, we that's not a service that we provide. We actually would um, advise the owner to... Uh, try to obtain their own experts to take a look at their property to see if there's any issues that need to be fixed or corrected. Uh, the building department only goes out to a property when you have a permit, uh, you're in installing something or building something, and you want they want to make sure that it's in compliance with the uh, codes. Um, okay. Right now, our enforcement is set up more as a, a complaint-based uh, system. Can that uh, be subject to change? Can the board consider that? Because it seems to me that owners should be able to request code enforcement to go out to properties to verify things. I mean, tenants sometimes can accuse their owners of something, and uh, it would be nice if the owner could get your office to go out. Uh, the, again, it's not a service that our code enforcement in unincorporated county does. Uh, you, as a property owner, you have control of your property, and and your, you know, you can get um, contractors or experts to take a look at your property to see if it's you know up to code. And if you, if that uh, experts that you get gives you the information that something needs to be fixed or needs to be brought up to code, then they get a permit to do so and uh, the building inspectors will check uh, the work or the installation or whatever you're trying to correct and to see if it does meet uh, code requirements. Thank you. If I could just clarify, if a complaint is made against an owner, we're not going to fine or levy or uh, lien anything until an inspector goes and verifies. Is that correct? I think his question was, can an owner call in and say, I want code enforcement to inspect my property. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. yeah. And that's not something that we do. But the point being that um, if a complaint is made, there's always going to be some in-person verification. Yes. By an if a complaint is made, we do go out and verify. And just to clarify that, if a complaint is made, an inspector goes out, finds nothing there, is the property owner billed anything? Uh, no. There's okay. no... Uh, Matter of fact, even if we do an initial inspection and we write up violations, if the owner corrects it in a timely manner that we're satisfied with, there's no fees uh, involved. 
Very only good. for failed inspections. Thank you. Any other comment, uh, for public comments on? All right. Julio, you're on the line. Hi, good morning, supervisors. My name is Julio Contreras, and I'm a community organizer with My Eden Voice. I just want to recap that AB 838's purpose is to improve inspection programs locally at the county and city level. The inspection program's main purpose should be to help the health of tenants and to have habitable places, right? Because it's We're on the consent calendar. This is not the time to comment on items not on the consent calendar. So if you could return okay. at that time, it would be appreciated. Any other speakers on the consent calendar, which is item number three? Yes, we do have another speaker. Kelly, you're on the line. Please unmute your mic, Kelly. Next no speaker. Speakers. No more speakers. Uh, it's been moved and seconded to approve the consent calendar. Could we take a roll? Oh, President Miley, question? Uh, yeah, real, or real quickly, yeah. just a point of order, and it's my my fault. I forgot to mention I have no, I've examined the agenda and my contribution list, and I have no Levine Act um, uh, complications. Roll call vote, please. Supervisor Tam. Aye. Supervisor President Miley. Aye. Supervisor Carson excused. Supervisor Halbert. Aye. Very good. With that, we'll move on to uh, the regular calendar item four, approving the American Rescue Plan Act, ARPA, for the unincorporated area funding to implement a modified rental inspection code enforcement. Good morning, supervisors. I think the title on this one uh, says it all. We are... Uh, hoping to launch this program to fill a, a gap um, in county services and respond to new state law around the issue of uh, complaint-based inspections for residential properties. In this action, we're asking the board to approve $665,000 to launch a pilot program. This will be a complaint-based residential inspection program using existing uh, county code as well as uh, using existing programs within the county, specifically our code enforcement unit. Uh, this is a two-year program uh, that's being proposed, at which point we'll have more data at that point to determine what uh, the county's long-term needs may be around the issue of residential inspection. We have had discussions in the community level with uh, diverse interest groups, and it does enjoy support um, from both the, uh, the rental and tenant advocates as well as property owners. And with the board's approval today, we'll be able to launch the, the, the pilot beginning immediately and there's program detail in your board letter. If you have questions, I myself or Edward can also answer any questions you may have about the, the content in the board letter. Thank you very much. Before we begin, I can't help but wonder if the previous speaker was meaning to comment on this item as opposed to weed abatement complaints, but rather tenant complaints about their building in general. So we might keep those comments in mind as we hear this item. Thank you.
uh, set up the uh, overhead here. So um, Ed Labayog again, Code Enforcement Manager. Uh, so under this program, the Code Enforcement Division will respond to tenant complaints of habitability and substandard condition in the unincorporated Alameda County. Um, because our inspectors are already out in the field uh, responding to complaints of neighborhood preservation ordinance and zoning ordinances, uh, I think that it's um, a lot easier for our inspectors to also be involved with these kinds of complaints. Uh, it makes us more um, diverse in the types of things that we can cover. Um, so um, bringing it over to code enforcement makes uh, a lot of sense to us. Uh, we're also going to be providing training for code enforcement staff regarding housing quality standards and substandard conditions. Although they are aware about housing quality standards, uh, this is not something that they do routinely, so uh, getting the training uh, will be helpful and also for our entire team to be aware of the kinds of uh, things that we can call as violations or corrections, and it will also help us and guide us uh, produce our uh, processes and procedures when it comes to addressing these uh, types of complaints. And then we're going to inspect the subject residents and the units um, uh, to, to uh, identify any corrections or violations that, uh, that we think is, would be uh, valid. We're not adding any, um, this is an added operation. We're not introducing any new ordinances. We will be referencing the, referencing the existing uh, housing codes code standards in chapter 15.24 and under the building code. Uh, and we're also gonna be utilizing California Health and Safety Code Standards uh, uh, 17920.3, which also um, highlights or uh, addresses substandard conditions and, um, and, and um, other things that may not be fully incorporated in our chapter 15.24. Uh, we're also going to follow in enforcement and abatement procedures because we're already doing that under Chapter 6.65, Neighborhood Preservation Ordinance. And, and if need be, we're also going to be using 15.28 under the, that, those abatement procedures. Uh, currently, the Code Enforcement Division is already set up with administrative enforcement in terms of uh, being able to apply liens if they're for unpaid fees like you just approved this morning. And uh, we can also entertain appeals from property owners. We can set up appeal hearings. Uh, we can also uh, ensure that any abatement uh, orders that are followed through, uh, we do reinspections to make sure that full compliance is achieved. Um, so just as a note, uh, if, the, if we run into any situations where we feel like the, the, the house is, um, in such serious condition that it may need to be red tagged or do not occupy, uh, we will um, get the support from building inspectors and this happens uh, in our um, inspections now when we see illegal units, for example, we have a building inspector come out to make sure that it's, um, it's safe. If it's not safe, they you know, may impose a red tag on, uh, on the property. And also, rental property owners are responsible for tenants that may be temporarily or permanently re relocated or displaced because of substandard housing conditions, uh, substandard housing conditions uh, and necessary repairs per AB 1482. 
Tenant Protection Act of 2019. Uh, the tenants may seek legal advice to pursue civil action using the state's relocation assistance um, regulations if the owner does not take any actions. Code enforcement inspectors will engage the tenant and landlord to make them aware of their rights, rules, and responsibilities and refer them to any voluntary mediation services if needed, even to uh, tenant advocacy um, groups if, if they need some support there. Or um, sometimes uh, legal uh, free legal advice if they can, if they can get it. Uh, under this program too, we're gonna uh, collect data. So we feel it's important for us to collect the data while we're doing this program, uh, we want to collect data in terms of what types of complaints are we getting? You know, plumbing, electrical, mechanical, is it a lot of mold complaints that we're getting? What type of units are being impacted? Where the general locations are? Um, and uh, any opportunities for us to make referrals? And just the overall conditions of the property. And, and how it's, uh, if we issue fines and fee, I mean, uh, violations, how those things are being remediated. I think collecting data will help us um, determine what the problems are that are out there in terms of rental units. And uh, we can pinpoint what kind of services are needed there, not just from code enforcement, maybe an opportunity for other departments like Vector or Health Department. Uh, and, and we are in a position also to make those referrals when we're out there engaging with the tenant and the property owners. We're also gonna do outreach and education. We feel that's important for uh, tenants and housing providers to know their rights, roles, and responsibilities. So the way we're gonna do this, we're gonna develop a campaign. Uh, I've, we've already reached out to uh, uh, tenant advocacy groups and uh, housing providers they're really excited about this to be, uh, to partner with us, to create the um, materials, to have the venue be participate in it, and, and, uh, and, um, and you know, they, they realize that this, this will benefit both parties. We're gonna do handouts and flyers related to habitability complaints and how to file a complaint and we're gonna develop a series of public presentations to promote awareness. I'm, we already go to a lot of the community meetings, Chairland, Ashland, uh, and, and uh, we wanna be um, present there and, and uh, do our presentations in those uh, community groups. Workshops for tenants and housing providers regarding uh, education, again, to uh, reinforce the rights, roles, responsibility related to housing conditions and needed repairs. A lot of times they don't know uh, what they can complain about, how to complain, and what the enforcement process is once we get involved. So I think if they understand all these things, it'll make it a lot easier uh, process for everybody. We're also gonna update our in existing code, code enforcement website to include general information about how to file a complaint, what type of complaints, and information about lead and mold and all those uh, good things that people can benefit from. And also a uh, complaint referral form in our website so that people can just complain. Another way for them to complain uh, other than just calling our, our office. And then we're gonna provide reporting uh, 
uh, to this committee, uh, to or actually to the Transportation Planning Committee um, for the, after the first year on how the program status and, and is going and uh, recommend any adjustments if needed. Uh, and we're also gonna provide a second report towards the middle of the second year to evaluate the program and to see if a complaint-based system is working and we wanna continue it or we wanna uh, try to move forward with a proactive uh, rental inspection program. Uh, funding again, uh, as um, Mr. Lopez says, um, we want to be able to utilize the American Rescue Plan Act um, funds for this next two years. So the estimated cost will be developing the program, provide additional staffing uh, inspector up to, you know, maybe uh, half-time inspector to help us because we have existing staff that can absorb some of this already but we don't know how busy we're gonna get once this is in place. We, we, we expect that it's gonna rise, the number of complaints. It's already rising as we speak, but um, the more we get, the more service we can provide. And, of, and uh, additional clerical support part-time and council, county council to help us in those difficult cases that we may encounter. It's a small percentage, but we still need them to support us. And the very rare occasions where we have to take cases to appeals and hearings, uh, under 15.28, we do need a hearing officer for that. Uh, those are things that are not heard by the Board of Zoning Adjustment. And uh, I think that at the end of this, the long-term funding, uh, that, that we may seek long-term funding if uh, once the pilot program ends and fees could either be uh, paid through a reactive complaint-based system, or if not, then we'll have to explore how other funding can be developed for a reactive system. So uh, I don't know if you have any final things to say, Albert. Any questions? Supervisor Miley. Um, comments and questions. First of all, I wanna thank the uh, planning staff, staff and code enforcement uh, unit for for this work uh, bringing this to us today you know we've been I've heard probably four or more presentations on this over the course of the last few years so and trying to work a program out so I'm really pleased that this is finally to the full board for us to uh, vote on it that's first thing so I just want to thank you for that um, I think you've heard some of my concerns in the past and that's why hopefully you've addressed them because with the staffing piece, if you are inundated with a lot of complaints, um, I want to make sure there's sufficient staffing. And I've been assured by planning director and hopefully the agency director that if um, there needs to be additional resources so that it's not a half-time staff person um, or um, a quarter time or whatever, that additional personnel will be added to uh, provide the necessary uh, staffing to ensure that we are um, driving the program effectively. So I know I've been assured of that and just want to put that out on the record to make sure of the case because I'm, I'm a little concerned about the staffing levels. And then um, uh, the data collection is extremely important. Um, 
And with the data collection, will you also be keeping track of the cost associated with the, the staff work as well as any other course cost associated with that particular um, compliance on a particular unit? Uh, uh, with the staff time, we are uh, creating a separate um, category in our timesheet so that, that we were able to track the, the time that the inspector spends on these cases. Yes. Okay, because I do think as we evaluate this after a year and then ultimately after two years, I think it's going to be important for the, the board and the public to have a sense of what this has cost us, even though we're pay paying with it now through ARPA funding, we need to have a sense of what does this cost us. And it's going to be, um, you know, I, I'm speculating that there's going to be more cost in the beginning than uh, as, um, after the program is operational, because I do expect there'll be a lot of complaints. But as things move along and after the first year, I think some of that will subside as a program. And I just need to uh, be aware of what we anticipate the cost would be um, prospectively after two years. So I think that's why keeping track of the cost, I think it's going to be important as we're going, as we're going through this. The other thing is under our um, neighborhood preservation ordinance, um, we can fee charge for reinspections. So will we also be keeping track of um, compliance and if there is, you know, a reinspection um, on a particular a property, a particular unit, as well as keeping track of uh, if there are repeat offenders? Uh, I think under the uh, neighborhood reservation ordinance, we're allowed to charge for failed uh, reinspections. Uh, if we have an owner that is trying their best and they've shown substantial compliance, we generally don't charge for those inspections. But I think if we have a, a proactive program, uh, in the future, uh, we can revisit uh, if whether or not we charge for just reinspections yeah. in general. Yeah, because once again, I think in terms of the data, it's going to be important that we know. So um, X unit was a, uh, came into compliance, or X unit uh, took three times to come into compliance. Um, uh, X units, uh, plural, uh, are owned by this landlord, and we, he's been or she's been a, a repeat offender. I mean, I think it's going to be important for us to kind of know that. So when we look at what we're going to build in prospectively um, after two years, we have a sense of, of, of how we're going to um, uh, uh, fi finance this. Because I'm hoping we can finance this on, if it's proactive, or if we continue with complaint ba uh, basis, I'm hoping we'll be able to finance it through the offenders as opposed to having to um, put additional uh, fees on top of uh, uh, landlords and property owners that are compliant and doing, you know, doing the right thing and aren't getting uh, complaints. For instance, if I'm a landlord and I'm not getting complaints, but then you want me to pay a fee for this program, I mean, I... I mean, to me, that dog doesn't hunt. I, I, I haven't, I'm, I'm doing the right thing, so I shouldn't yeah. have to pay into this. But, so I think as we look at this in the future, that's why I think it's important to have that, you have that data and that information. Um, let me see here. 
and I know you've said it's coming back to TMP, the Transportation Planning Committee, after a year. So that's good. Oh, with with us, if we pass this today, when will this become effective, and what time frame are we working on in terms of a year? The uh, we believe that we can launch the program. It's a pilot, and so we can begin immediately uh, in terms of getting the word out and and putting the message on our website and and making the the complaint line live. Um, in terms of the the two year, I I probably would need to defer or get back to you because I'm not really sure exactly if how that ARPA money is programmed. If is it two years from today or is it the end of 2024? I don't know. It is the end of 2024, so mm. it's a little less than two years. Okay, so we've got to get moving. Okay, okay. Um, and then how much do we allocate for this? 400000 a month? 665 Okay, okay. I think the breakdown is uh, the last attachment on the... Okay, and then the final thing is, I just want to point out, you know, we've heard, because we've had a lot of, I mean, Ignacium, a lot of... Um, hearings on landlord-tenant matters over the last uh, a year or two. And, you know, I've, we've heard some complaints about tenants living in squalor. Um, so this is, this is meant to get at that, right? To uh, get at landlords. If I'm a tenant, I can complain. If I'm an outside party, I can complain. Um, anybody can complain about a, a property where a tenant is and they think there are, there are issues that need code enforcement. To go take a look at. That's correct. Yes. Okay. Because it really bothers me when I hear people saying, "Well, this tenant's living in these substandard conditions." It's like, "Well, who's who's policing that?" But this would help us to police that and get that landlord into compliance. And plus, that landlord's got to deal with the relocation of that tenant while that landlord is fixing up that place. Yeah. If that's the uh, that's what's needed. Yes. Okay. All right. Supervisor Tam. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, I, I'm supportive of this effort to comply with AB 838. Uh, I just had uh, a couple questions. The, the follow-up from the questions that you had with President Miley. So, because um, I, I noticed under AB 838, there's a discussion about uh, abatement when it comes to, you know, storage of trash and and um, abatement of exterior property that uh, cause health and safety concerns. Um, so if, if, the, um, if the tenant is responsible for the upkeep and, and, and for example, the, the concerns that were flagged, uh, it, can, can a property owner file a complaint um, saying that there is an issue here and it warrants an inspection? So when it comes to uh, violations on properties, we only make the property owner accountable. Even if, for example, the tenant is the one that's um, creating the problem, and it's up to the owner to engage their tenant because they have a lease and conditions of their leases probably entails not violating county ordinances, so they have to go after their tenant in, in that route rather than us, because we don't go after tenants, we go after property owners, I, or we engage with property owners. Okay, and, and, and if that's the case, because um, I, I noticed in your staff report you talked about 
the uh, code enforcement uh, group and the inspectors helping both the property owner and the tenant understand their rights under 1482, um, particularly when it comes to abatement and relocation. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that put uh, your inspectors in that sort of mediation situation when the tenant is not complying with the terms of their lease? Well, a, a lot of times when we get cases like this, when there's already rift between the owner and the landlord, uh, our inspectors are unique because they're not like the building inspectors. We do have a lot of uh, training and experience with trying just mediate the problem to come to a voluntary compliance where everybody's happy. We talk to the tenant, hey, you just got to clean this up. This is, you know, this is your responsibilities under your lease. And uh, a lot of times we get a lot of things done just by engaging the owner and the proper and the uh, tenant. But uh, again, if we feel like it's a violation that needs to be taken care of, the owner, uh, the fines and fees goes to the owner and all the abatement um, requirements goes to the owner and it's up to the owner to tell their tenants, look, I'm being cited by the county. You're not abiding by their rules. This could be a violation of your lease and, and pursue that uh, their own way. Okay. Um, uh, the second question I had was uh, in your description of the program, you, you talk about the referrals to the building department, particularly if if there's a structural integrity issue or if there's you know interior code uh, building code concerns. Um, so, in terms of tracking the cost of the program, does the building department when they are coming out to uh, do that inspection and and maybe uh, move toward red tagging a building, whether it's storm damage or something else? Do we I mean, I'm sure they would be billing for um, their time and their costs. And is that going to be wrapped into looking at the overall cost of a future program? With um, the building department's role? Historically, they haven't charged us any time they needed our support because they ask us support too when they have um, encounter situations that they need code enforcement. So I think it's a mutual. Uh, help that we provide each other and we don't bill each other and they, they've never done it but I will be able to track down uh, thank you for that suggestion track down if if any um, units are actually red tagged or, or whenever situation where we do call out a billing inspector we can track that yeah I think that's going to be important uh, mowing going mowing forward and when we're looking at uh, putting in place a more permanent program and understanding the overall cost because we're hearing that every department is short staff and yes there's uh there's significant vacancies and so uh we need to make sure that there's appropriate funding for the staffing thank you thank you i'm also supportive i note that in the staff report uh, it was mentioned that rental housing providers and tenants have both uh weighed in uh at various meetings and there seems to be uh, good consensus Maybe not everybody, maybe not perfect um, consensus, but enough uh, to explore this pilot, which we will collect data, see how it goes, may continue, may not. Um, 
as noted by Supervisor Miley, this is meant to target the bad actors creating unlivable, unsafe, untenable living conditions for people that we've heard about, living in containers, living in uh, other just not good places to live. I, I see this as fair warning and almost, uh, I'll say it, a declaration of war against slumlords. If you're a slumlord and housing people in deplorable conditions, watch out, get ready, we're coming after you. And I think that's a good thing. By the same token, I want to make sure that we don't, um, that we have a balance, that there's not excessive complaints, that we're very clear about what constitutes a good complaint, a valid complaint, not to get in the middle, this is not to, met, to be a tool uh, to riff between tenant and landlord. So we have to make sure that uh, we're clear about that. Are we planning to hold any Zoom town halls or an in-person town halls in addition to written documentation, which I'm guessing we're going to put out in multiple languages, but can we just have a community conversation about this would be one recommendation. Another question I have is, um, I'm sure that some people mm, are hesitant to issue a complaint, perhaps based on their documentation status, their immigration status. I want to make it very clear. I'll just ask a question. I think I already know the answer. That is not something that they should be afraid of. We're not going to be collecting that status information. It's not going to be, you know, you should be able to complain if there's a valid complaint, regardless of your documentation status. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. We're not okay. collecting uh, citizenship data or anything like that. We just want to know that they are the valid tenant. Um, we should provide that explanation in multiple languages. Yes. So with that said, um, we'll go to public comment. Do we have uh, speakers with their hands raised? How many? Two, two minutes for each one. Thank you. Julio, you're on the line. Hi, good morning, supervisors. Thank you for letting me speak again. Um, I just wanted to highlight that uh, there might be some loopholes uh, in the red tagging of buildings um, for units that are found uninhabitable. And this can be used uh, as a method to evict tenants. Um, and so that's that's one of the most important points we want to highlight and just also want to say that this should really empower tenants to raise up their voice and to be able to speak up for any uninhabitable conditions. And so any repercussions or any backlash from from uh, landlords should be really important and should be uh, written in, in language and, and pass an ordinance to really protect tenants uh, so that they're not evicted so that uh, they don't face uh, you know substantial rent increases or any other landlord abuse um, I'd also want to mention that um, oh I forgot to introduce myself Julio Contreras my invoice uh, community organizer of the 100 75 tenants that we uh, did door-to-door -door knocking and uh, canvassing um, for that we submitted uh, to Lena Tan and to Supervisor Lena Tan and uh, to Miley. Um, over 60% of the folks that we talked to mentioned uninhabitable conditions and the fear of uh, pressing landlords to, to 
make these changes um, because they could be evicted or because they could face this backlash. So this is something that's very important and, and very uh, concerning to tenants. Um, and also, uh, a lot of them were paying for their own um, to do their own fixes. So landlords were pushing the cost uh, and also the manual labor of doing uh, these changes uh, by them. Uh, I just want to say uh, thank you um, as well. This program is uh, beneficial and can help, but it can also be used uh, to benefit landlords and empower landlords instead of, of tenants. Um, and Ed, I just wanted to say, I hope that there can be uh, more language, uh, better uh, equity on uh, workers that, that are hired, um, language justice, uh, race, race and uh, sex and just uh, better diversity in the program. Thank you. Isabel, you're on the line. Hi, can you guys hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, one of the first things I wanna say is, is to Nate who's questioning that there might be some slumlords in Cherryland or Ashland. Nate, that's your district. How do you, how, why would you even question that? You have people living in, in straight slums. It's some of the worst places in the country. We're on national news almost nightly. And you're asking that there might be? Like, where do you work, bro? Do you work in like Alabama or something? Milwaukee? Have you been to Ashland and Cherryland? We might need these protections. And here's another thing. That red tag, it is going to be used against tenants. Tenants that the landlords want to evict, they're going to go and tell on themselves and say, hey, I'm doing a good thing. Uh, this house is unlivable. And they know that they can wait out people. Uh, a landlord who's already paid for his house can wait three or four months. But a tenant who's living there with three or four people, their mom, their dad, whoever it is, they're going to have to live in a motel that whole time. So that's an easy way to evict them. And unfortunately, because Lena Tam has got a $200,000 donor and it's been paid off and paid for and showed as her vote that she's for the landlords, we don't have no protections, Nate. You're our only leader, a.k.a. our king, because we can't vote or elect anybody else. You're our one representative. And our one representative doesn't know how slummy Ashland and Cherryland is. Like, what do you do daily, Nate? I'm serious. What do you do daily? You have people living in upside-down shipping containers where an extension cord is running from an apartment complex to that shipping container, which is like a three-bedroom apartment. Sewage leaking everywhere. And your you're, you're question, we might... We might need protections. Like, Nate, I'm sorry, bro, but you have been sold to the landlords. You and Lena Tam. And our only hope is to elect somebody new. Because for you to question this, like, what have we been doing for the past two years if you still have doubt on how, how the situation is? Like, what is the point of us even speaking to you if there's still doubt in your mind? I do not thank you for doing your job and listening to us. Larry, you're on the line. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Larry Brooks, Director of Alameda County Healthy Homes and Childhood Poisoning Prevention uh, and a member of the Board of Directors for the California Association of Code Enforcement Officers. Um, the, the goal of code enforcement is to bring about compliance. And uh, yes, there are some bad landlords. There are some bad tenants. Uh, thank God they're few in number. Uh, and in those situations, code enforcement uh, will be able to document the violations, uh, take photographs, et cetera. And, and that evidence can be used by either landlords or tenants to carry out whatever uh, particular agenda they have. Uh, that's traditional code enforcement. 
part of my excitement about this program is that uh, it has an opportunity to change the dynamic of traditional code enforcement to a more uh, cooperative, uh, collaborative uh, compliance program. And by that, I mean that this program will be working in conjunction with the Healthy Homes Department. We have ARPA money uh, to go in and do minor home repairs. And uh, we have been uh, doing this uh, for property owners under Community Development Block Grant uh, for decades. Uh, and for decades, we've said something needed to be done for rentals as, as well, uh, especially now after the pandemic. We need to be able to go in, identify violations, but also be able to offer some resources to those landlords who are renting to uh, low-income tenants uh, in order to help uh bring their, their homes, uh, their rental units into compliance. Uh, so we've already started the rental uh, minor home repair program uh, with the ARPA money, and we're, we're looking forward to uh, being able to work in partnership with code enforcement on this tenant complaint response program. Thank you. Speaker, you're on the line. Hi there, my name is Jade Lay and I am the Equity Initiatives Program Manager for La Familia. I'm speaking today to support the CDA proposal for the two-year pilot program. Um, and I know and I believe that the CDA will absolutely improve and enhance the delivery of service and response related to tenant complaints and enforcement in unincorporated Alameda County. There are multiple buckets that this pilot program would support, again, such as data collection, outreach, education, and reporting, um, and ultimately would you know sustain some jobs if not create new job opportunities within the CDA to really push and create an equitable, healthy, safe living standard in unincorporated Alameda County. Um, you know, as much um, as, you know, the staff report says, and I know there's a lot of conversation around tenants' rights, um, at the end of the, like, what I really like to highlight is the outreach and education, what I think is super important and making sure that there are workshops being done. This would support tenants' rights advocacies and promoting what the rights are of tenants and doing so much more than just code enforcement and enforcing policies. So this sounds like a really good opportunity to continue to build community and make sure that everyone living in the unincorporated area is aware of their rights as tenants. Um, the CDA juggles a lot, um, and this pilot program would support ordinances that are already in place besides just tenants' rights, such as the tobacco retailer licensing program, which has really dramatically made a difference in how many retailers are appealing, how many retailers are actually selling prohibited items. Um, a smoke-free multi-unit housing ordinance that was recently passed earlier this year, that has really resolved some issues with the support of code enforcement um, and the public health department. And of course, um, the tenants' rights um, that is an additional bucket. And so, I, again, I, I'm support of this pilot program that will um, really allow code enforcement to continue to do their job and allow them to do their job um, really good. Thank you. Kelly, you're on the line. Thank you. Um, the staffing levels that we're talking about here today are not qualified, trained, and experienced building inspectors. Mr. Leboyog doesn't have any building inspectors. Um, up until now, there's been a clear line. You know, his inspectors are out there in the field, and that literally means in the field. Doesn't mean in the houses. It means in the field, dealing with the code enforcement, the neighborhood blight, the neighborhood blight, not the in-house blight. 
So, you know, for you to come up with a, st a staff that is qualified to go into the houses and deal with the plumbing problems and the mold problems and the whatever problems, um, that would be a different department. It's actually in public works. It's called uh, Building Inspection Department. So, um, Mr. Leboyog and your board, you you want to tar target the bad actors that create unlivable conditions. Um, but you, he, but you're, while Leboyog is pretending to deal with landlords and uh, tenants, um, the, his mediation service only goes after owners. Um, or, who are or engages with owners who are denigrated as uh, slumlords. Um, but uh, I don't think you should really be so hard on the uh, owners um, when you are also engaging with tenants who might fairly be described as homewreckers. Um, it really ought to bother your board to hear that tenants aren't paying rent um, and there are a lot of uh, bad tenants, a lot of non-rent paying tenants, and not an insignificant number. In fact, your chief of staff for District 1 was on the internet three days ago, speaking on tape on the record, joking about the massive volume of rent non-payments, talking about how great it would be if he stopped paying his rent too. Um, collecting, collecting fines and penalties um, is what you're, you're, you're proposing to do, but you're not going to help with collecting rents. This is the only large county in the country that has the large-scale non-payment of rent that is sponsored and supported by the Board of Supervisors. Um, this is the worst imaginable timing for you to add more fines and penalties on landlords while not yet having fixed the rent non-payments. Thank you. Leo, you're on the line. Hi, good morning, this is Leo, my new voice. Um, we've been raising the habitability issue for over four years and we often got complaints, uh, broken toilets, plumbing, mold, rodent infestation. And this is one step towards addressing these needs, but there are still outstanding concerns we could fully, to fully support this. Um, our members are concerned there's no safety net to support this pilot program. So our questions that we hope to can address today is how will tenants be insured? They have a place to stay without a local just cause in place. Um, the state just cause only requires one month of relocation and really doesn't ensure their tenancies are continued. So meaning landlord can just choose to not recognize um, that lease coming back. Single family renters are left out of current state protections. So what happens when a single family renter makes a complaint and gets red tagged? There's no legal aid funding additionally um, that was approved for low income tenants to access these uh, education and knowing their tenant rights to help during the dispute. So how are tenants, landlords, and homeowners able to access legal advice during this process? Um, these points were all covered in the proactive rental inspection program, and we do hope to see a proactive rental inspection enacted sooner. Thank you. If we could take a five-minute uh, break, I would appreciate it. We'll come back in five minutes. Board's in recess. Recording in progress. Okay, we're going to call back into session. Will the clerk please call the roll? Supervisor Tam. Present. President Miley. I'm still here. <laughs> Supervisor Carson, excuse. Supervisor Halbert. Present. We'll proceed with public comment. Thank you. Matt, you're on the line. You have two minutes to speak. 
Hey, good afternoon, uh, or good morning, rather. Uh, uh, looking for a significant boost in staffing. Uh, you know, uh, I know Ed's doing all he can with the folks he has, and uh, I think the answer is for both building inspection and code enforcement to have a significant boost in personnel. Um, you know, this I'm looking forward to seeing what this thing can do. But, um, you know, I can tell you that there are a lot of places that have uh, called in over the years where people have paved over driveways and turned, uh, you know, sub 1,000 square foot houses into five unit rentals with illegal construction, all that having been reported and nothing ever done about it. Um, so if we want this thing to actually be successful and have teeth, you know, give, give them the resources they need. Thanks. Speaker, you're on the line. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. My name is Sandra Macias. I am a resident of Castro Valley and District uh, Supervisor Miley's district. Um, and I am calling, I, I definitely want to echo what the previous speaker said about uh, making sure that code enforcement is funded. They are definitely a uh, reactive body when they should be a proactive body. I think they do amazing work in um, supporting a lot of the code enforcement um, work that we have done through our different policy initiatives, but it is really important that they are properly funded in order for these plans to work. I also wanted to highlight the importance of making sure that um, the policy, even though it is looking to support tenants, that it doesn't inadvertently harm them through loopholes of red tagging. I think it was mentioned before that the landlords do have a lot of the power and we don't want to create a situation where we're trying to help tenants and uh, improve the quality of the units, but then that's weaponized to get them out, you know, as a way to to displace families with our, this wave of gentrification that we are seeing. And so I would definitely want to make sure that we support this policy. I think it's a great opportunity for data collection. I work in Hayward Acres in particular, um, where we're not even a census designated area. So just between the zip codes, the uh, data collection points, the census, it's really hard to collect that. And so in order to make good informed choices and policies, we do need that data. So I definitely support this program. I want to make sure that tenants are protected, that it is properly funded, and that um, we actually get a hold on some of these issues that are going on in the unincorporated area. I mean, if you walk around that area, you see the the horrible things. I think I have seen, like, we bring up this shipping container, like it's, it's, this, it's talking point, but like, can you imagine living in a situation like that and the danger that it poses to other people to have that electrical, plumbing, all that nightmare? I mean, this is not a third world country. We are one of the richest nations in the world and we should not have these conditions in our community. There are no more speakers. Very good. I'll bring it back and recognize Supervisor Miley. Oh, thank you, Chairman. Uh, a few things. Uh, first of all, the um, will we be collecting data as a data point to, uh, around uh, the tenants? So, for instance, because I do feel very concerned about any retaliation against tenants. And as one speaker pointed out, we had a, a couple of speakers kind of alluded to the fact, and once we use the word weaponized, we don't want this to be a, a program that's weaponized against tenants. So will we be collecting data to, you know, like this, this unit, there was a complaint, um, uh, the tenant is XYZ, and uh, this is what 
results were in reference to that particular tenant. If that tenant was uh, had to move out, uh, be relocated, um, you know, just any information that would be helpful for us to determine whether or not the program is having uh, the you know unintended consequences. Because you know, I know the consequences are not of this program are not to hurt tenants, but to improve habitability. So, will we be collecting data to to look at that point? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, some of the uh, data points I mentioned in the staff report is just a glimpse. We haven't come up with a final uh, uh, categories that we want to collect, but thank you for the uh, few suggestions you've made to us today. And um, we'll be reaching out again to tenants and housing providers to get information on what kind of data they want to see. And we'll, ultimately, we'll make the final decision. But I think knowing about if there's a violation cited was it corrected? How it was corrected? How did it impact the tenant? Mm -hmm. I think those are all good points, and uh, it, it's a good suggestion, I think. Yeah, because I know, Ed, you and Albert and Sandy, I mean, you guys know that we're very um, concerned about the welfare of, of tenants, yes. as we are about anyone. But the point of the matter is we need to make this program stand up for what we want it to do as opposed to having the consequences that, produce more hardship for people. So let's just make sure we do that um, in terms of putting the data points together. And then speakers have talked about the need to make sure the program is adequately staffed and resourced, and that's why I brought that up. And I've got assurance from the planning director and the agency director that if no, more resources and more staffing needs to go into this, that's going to happen. Is that correct? For, uh, in, well, in a large part, I think the next couple of years is going to be data gathering. We don't really necessarily know what to expect. I mean, some of the comments today seem very worst-case scenario to me, but I don't doubt that those conditions exist. So we don't really know exactly what the resources are going to be required to keep to sustain something at this level. But I think after the yeah, one-year and two-year check-in, we'll have that information and be able to make better decisions. And if we need more staffing and more resources, I think we'll we'll discuss that in detail at that time. Uh, for the launch, for the pilot, I mean, we're already gonna be staffing up um, and using existing staff as well. So I think we'll be okay for, the, for, the, for this pilot. But in two years, I think it's, an, it's another question about what the resources may be. Yeah, well, uh, Albert, I, I hear what you're saying, but I have a big fear that with the pilot, we are not gonna have sufficient staffing and resources. And if we're inundated, and that's kind of the point I was making earlier and I've made yeah. in the past, if we're inundated and the um, uh, the staff that are assigned to this are overwhelmed, I need to have some assurance that we're going to uh, uh, have additional code officers or additional staff mm -hmm. from the agency or, or the department or bring on other staff that can help deal with the, I mean, if let's suppose uh, we get 50 complaints and those complaints lead to other, other things, and they're just overwhelmed. These two people, and it's not even two full-time people. I don't want to see a backlog of, you know, we've got these 50 complaints. We've been able to get to 10 of them in, five, in, you know, in six months. I mean, that's just not going to sure. work. And, and as a supervisor, we won't have a report on this unless we ask for a report before 
year. We won't have a report on this until a year. Now, I'm, I'm sure Supervisor Tam and I will be hearing about what goes on as we check in with, with, you, know, with, with you guys and with the community. We'll be hearing stuff, but there won't be an official report. So I can't, I can't have us wait for a year to have ample staffing to deal with a backlog if you're experiencing you know, an overwhelming number of uh, complaints and concerns in the pilot in the first year yeah, in the first year and, and appreciate that concern and i i think we're fortunate to have the arpa funding for this pilot program in such a way that uh, i think initially as your board had approved a proactive a rental inspection and since this is more complaint based there is a, a lower cost that we estimated but that builds in some flexibility should we need more mm -hmm. staffing and so uh, as we presented at team p and and uh, stating now that if the need is there, we will okay. rise, uh, raise uh, that up with the board members as okay. well as add more staff. Okay. Thank you. That's the kind of the answer I was hoping to hear from, to get on the record. And then I do feel that um, to make sure that tenants are being properly supported, I mean, I support AC um, Housing Secure, the program that we have provide funding to legal assistance for seniors, um, central legal, excuse me, not seniors, central legal. Um, and, and hopefully that and other uh, programs we can put together will be there to support um, uh, tenants in terms of having the representation and the counseling and the support that they need. Uh, but I know AC uh, Housing Secure is one of those programs that we have in place. So, you know, I'm on record supporting that. I'm prepared to continue to support that. I'm prepared to continue to put more resources into that. So I just want to go on record for that. And then, um, then I just want to state that, you know, Carlos, I, you know, hey, bro, you know, I, I, I know, bro, you know that I know my district. I've been in my district for 20-plus years, bro, and you know I know my district. My staff and I are out there on the ground. Bro, and you know that for a fact. I know, you know, Carlos, um, you, you keep me on my toes. You know, you're on one side of the equation, and I've got other folks on the other side of the equation. And my job, bro, is to look at the, the, um, the problems and the concerns that everybody face and not to take the side of any one particular uh, party, bro, but to try to do what's in, in the best interest of the public, bro. So I'm going to keep trying to do that, bro. And, you know, a, a great president once said, you can please some of the people all the time. You can please all of the people some of the time, but you can't please all of the people all the time. And, bro, I can't please you all of the time, even though I try, bro, and I'll continue to try to uh, please you, bro. But I know, bro, I'll never please you completely, but I do appreciate you constantly nagging me and raising these issues. And you know how to find me. You know, we've been at meetings, going face-to-face, -face, and we'll continue that, bro, because I, I love and respect you, your family, and everything that you're doing to try to support tenants and the underserved in my district of um, uh, District 4, Ashland, Cherryland, and bro, I'll continue to work hard, and bro, if you don't think I'm doing the job, um, that's your opinion, but I'll keep trying to do what I can do with my office, bro. So thank you a lot, bro, for always speaking out and pushing that agenda, bro. Very good. Is there a motion to approve or any other questions or comments? I will move approval. Second. Very good. Moved and seconded to approve uh, item number four. Roll call vote, please. Supervisor Tam? Aye. President Miley? Yes. Supervisor Carson, excuse. Supervisor Halbert? 
Aye. Thank you very much. With that, move, move, with that, we will move to item five, general plan amendment, considering an amendment to the general plan making two aggregated changes. These are aggregated changes pursuant to government code 65358. Eight. Is that right? Because there's a whole got bunch of my paper, well, yes. but you got it. All right, very good. Staff report, please. Yes, yeah, so this item is uh, combining two general plan amendments. We are limited by state law to amend our general plan only four times a year. So we're trying to be frugal with our general plan amendments and combine them. Uh, the first one, uh, Liz will handle uh, in terms of the um, ballot, implementing the ballot measure that occurred last November. And then um, I'll do it at 5B. And uh, 5C is actually the resolution uh, um, uh, approving both general plan amendments in 5A and 5B. And then 5D is an ordinance which is uh, amending the definition of a agricultural building, which is actually the companion ordinance to 5A. So hopefully I haven't confused the issue too much, but it is uh, one resolution for two general plan amendments. And so with that, I'll, I'll uh, vacate my seat and, and Liz can walk you through 5A. Good morning, supervisors. I'm Liz McElligott from the County Planning Department. Uh, as Albert said, uh, I am going to uh, talk to you today about uh, amendments to uh, the East County Area Plan and the Castor Valley General Plan to implement Measure D uh, 2022. Uh, so just uh, a little overview of the, the timeline. Uh, back in 2000, the original Measure D was passed uh, by a majority of the county voters, and that put... Uh, among other things, uh, certain limitations on the amount of development that can happen on in agricultural land. Uh, last year, back in August, you your board voted to place the new measure uh, on the uh, November ballot to amend Measure D uh, to change those uh, uh, square footage restrictions. The Measure D 2022, as we call it, to differentiate between the two, uh, was approved by the county voters in November of 2022. And uh, that approval uh, necessitates uh, a general plan amendment to actually put the language uh, in the ballot measure, which amended Measure D, um, uh, into the, the general plan. So that's what we're asking for you, you to do today. Uh, back in February, uh, a few weeks ago, the Planning Commission did consider this and, and recommended that your uh, board uh, approve the general plan amendments. So to get into what the amendments actually do, uh, there is a preface in the East County Area Plan that explains the original uh, uh, 2000 uh, Measure D and ex explains what changes it made to the original East County Area Plan document. Uh, so the uh, amendments we're asking you to consider today would add uh, a couple of sentences to that preface that uh, explain the, the changes um, made by, uh, or it, it informs the reader about the, uh, the, the passage of Measure D 
2022 and explains uh, how the changes are incorporated into the document. Next slide. Uh, for the East County Area Plan large parcel agriculture designation, uh, there are two changes that were made by the, the ballot measure. Um, for agricultural buildings, the amendments provide a, a floor area ratio of 0 0.025 for agricultural buildings in addition to the uh, floor area ratio of 0.01 already allowed for non-residential buildings. And for covered equestrian riding arenas, uh, the amendments uh, allow a maximum floor area ratio of 0 0.025 with a minimum allowable floor area of 20,000 square feet, which means that even on small properties, um, the, they're still allowed to have an arena that's 20,000 square feet. Uh, and then the, the maximum size is 60,000 square feet. And again, that's in addition to the, the floor area ratio of 0.01 for non-residential buildings. Uh, in both the East County Area Plan and Castro Valley General Plan, uh, the resource management designation description was changed just to add the, uh, the additional square footage for covered equestrian riding arenas. And then there are uh, a few changes that need to be made to uh, tables in the East County Area Plan just to make them consistent with the, uh, the changes in the land use designation descriptions. Uh, so that, is, that was item 5A, the general plan amendments related to uh, Measure D. Uh, and I'm going to skip now to item 5D, which is the zoning ordin ordinance amendment to add the uh, ag building definition. Uh, this was also considered by the planning commission and, and recommended, and they recommended uh, that your board uh, approve the, the ordinance to add this uh, definition to the zoning ordinance. Um, back in, and, and the, the, the reason that we're considering these, these two uh, items together, the, the general plan amendments and the, the zoning ordinance amendment, is because during the discussion of adding additional square footage or allowing additional square footage for agricultural buildings, it became evident that, that we needed to have a definition for agricultural building. Um, in February of 2021, the Ag Advisory Committee um, voted to recommend the, uh, the definition shown uh, on the slide. Uh, and this is a modification of the, uh, the definition in the building code, but it adds um, some additional prov provisions uh, regarding the, um, the items that could be stored in, in agricultural buildings, and it also allows processing um, uh, treatment and packaging of uh, products. Um, and it, it also adds uh, the, the last part that um, uh, states specifically that, that these are not places for social events. Next slide. Uh, in the course of preparing the, uh, the general plan amendments to bring to you today, uh, County Council reviewed the definition that had been recommended by the Ag Advisory Committee uh, and uh, recommended a few changes uh, just for uh, clarification. Um, and as you can see here, the, 
the the slide shows the um, the additions in underline and and the uh, the deleted language uh, crossed out. Um, so uh, basically, it just adds um, uh, designed and constructed or used um, to house farm implements or equipment, um, and the words poultry and stock or livestock were moved up um, just to um, have the, the, the sentence be a, a little clearer. Uh, and it also adds, or similar farm or ranch animals. Uh, so, uh, and, and then toward the bottom of the definition, um, you can see uh, the, the original language just had a slash between uh, agricultural and horticultural, and the words and and or were added uh, in, in addition to to the slash, to, just to clarify um, the intent uh, of that language. The uh, planning commission uh, considered um, both the originally proposed language and this language, and um, and also there was a speaker at the planning commission meeting that um, suggested that the word farm be added before the, the word equipment in the second line so that it would read farm implements or farm equipment. Um, the, the planning commission considered the addition of that word and decided that it was not necessary. So the planning commission's recommendation was for your board to um, uh, uh, approve uh, adding this uh, uh, definition that, that's uh, on your screen right now to the, the zoning ordinance, and that's the version that is reflected in the ordinance in your packet today. So uh, if, your, if your board uh, decides to approve the, the ordinance today, um, we'll bring it back to you for, we'll, we'll ask you to conduct the first reading of the ordinance today. Uh, we'll bring it back to you in April for a second reading, and then the ordinance will take effect in May. And finally, um, the, so the, the recommendation um, that we're asking, that the action that we're asking you to take today is after hearing item 5B, which Albert will present in, in just a minute, um, adopt the resolution in item two, er, sorry, 5C, making the general plan amendments in item 5A and 5B, um, and conduct the first hearing of the ordinance in item 5D, uh, which is the, the zoning or, or the ag building definition uh, uh, to add that to the, the zoning ordinance. So that concludes my presentation. Um, I'm not sure if you want to take uh, any clarifying questions before, before we go to public comment? Supervisor Miley? Yeah, I just, I don't have questions, but I do want to comment. I want to thank um, Liz for all the work she's done on this over the past uh, decade, because it has been a decade of work or more. Um, I mean, the, and the fact that the voters approved uh, the amendment to Measure D uh, last November was monumental have the support of, um, of, you know, the Friends of Livermore, have the support of the equestrian um, folks and, and have support of others. And to recognize that this amendment 
doesn't do anything to um, to jeopardize uh, open space and jeopardize the restrictions that we have on growth. It really just allows for ag to be more uh, beneficial and uh, protected and enhances ag as Measure D originally um, wanted to do. And I think even the makers of Measure D, the writers of Measure D, recognize that. And I think that's one reason why they supported the amendment as well. But it took us a 10-year journey to get to this, or more to get to this point. And the journey, I think, is almost over once we can get this one piece behind us, uh, do the ordinance, do the general plan amendments and things of that nature, then I think we can be, move on with uh, implementation. So I just want to uh, uh, thank Liz for her work on this over the years and uh, Albert and the planning uh, department as well. Um, and, you know, the definition that, um, that's, that the planning commission approved and the county council has uh, uh, modified with the planning commission's approval as well, you know, I, I think that that definition's a, a, a good definition. Um, I mean, I really regret that uh, more folks throughout the county didn't recognize the significance of, of measure, the amendment to Measure D this past November and um, the significance of this of this measure being amended and the, and the journey we've been on and what we'll be doing with this. Because uh, this will allow Alameda County to be more uh, attractive and competitive when it comes to um, the ag industry and the equestrian industry here in our county. So, so I just think this is a monumental achievement. And I know uh, once we hear the public speakers and the chair is ready for a motion, you know, I'm, I'm going to move this. And then I know we, we'll have to have the reading of the ordinance as well. Uh, I'll move that as well. But um, I just, I'm just so, so thankful um, uh, that we're finally to this point and can't wait until, what's the date? Until uh, May 13th, uh, if we can get through today, when the ordinance will take effect. Very good. Pro public comment? Please allow speakers two minutes. Dick, you're on the line. Good morning, supervisors. This is Dick Schneider. Um, I very much appreciate this moving forward uh, so quickly. Um, you know, 20 years, 22 years after Measure D passed, the voters did amend it, and um, it took a long time to get it done, and, and uh, I'm glad it did get done. I signed the ballot argument, and um, I hope this will make the improvements that will allow agriculture and, and uh, equestrian operations to um, improve, improve, make some more money. Um, <clears throat> I was the one that Liz mentioned at the Planning Commission um, raised the uh, request to insert the word farm in front of the word equipment in an abundance of caution. <laughs> Uh, I think a, a, an honest person reading that will, will understand that farm applies to both utensils and or implements and equipment. But somebody who wants to say, if it meant to be farm equipment, it would say farm equipment. And it could be other equipment that could be stored in these much larger in buildings. I mean, we're going up, we're adding another in the large parcel agriculture designation, another two and a half acres of, of buildings on every hundred acre parcel. And a bigger parcel would get even more. So in an abundance of caution to prevent unintended or intended 
violations of storing non-farm or non-ranch equipment in these larger buildings, I do request that you include the extra word farm to modify equipment. Thank you. Matt, you're on the line. Thanks to everybody. Uh, you know, I want to echo some of what Nate just said. Um, you know, this has been a, a long time coming. And I want to re really express my gratitude to, to Dick Schneider and Diana Hanna and so many others who were part of getting Measure D uh, put in place in, you know, in the beginning. And, uh, and then that continued work, you know, from staff, uh, Albert, and especially Liz. I mean, the many, many night meetings and long hours on, on getting something that was, you know, so fraught with, uh, you know, strong views on all sides to, to get through to something that was successful like this is a monumental achievement. Um, and uh, I, I would, I would uh, um, you know, add on to, uh, to what Dick says. I think that as specific as we can be, if there's any opportunity for increasing specificity to shoulds rather than shalls, that's always good. Um, I, I mean, shalls rather than shoulds. Uh, but uh, again, just congratulations to everybody involved as somebody who's been both, you know, uh, in, in the government's seat and then also as a citizen advocate, uh, this has been, um, you know, just an incredible effort and uh, to get it here, it really is an achievement. So uh, again, special thanks to Liz for, for all of the, the, the hard work and, and, and uh, incredible effort. Thank you. No more speakers. Very good. I just have a clarifying question as I'm reading the definition. Um, the structure shall not be a place of human habitation. Very important. Nor shall it be a place used by the public or for social events. And um, my concern about that is that we have wine barrel storage rooms um, all over wine country. And they're used for the family's private use. They're used by winery members for social events. Some other ag buildings are used for, perhaps for other personal gathering events for family use. And so is there a reason why we have to say it this way, nor shall it be a place used by the public or for social events or for my own personal social events. I own the property. I can't have my family over to be in my storage facility. We've been to many events that they just flexible space that's cleared out a few tables, gatherings by the family. Are we preventing that in any way by this sentence? And I either would advocate striking that last comma all the way through that last sentence or clarifying it here verbally on the record. Are we preventing those things that are already occurring from happening? Or how else would they continue to exist? That was language that was recommended by the, the members of the Ag Advisory Committee um, specifically to avoid um, uh, agricultural buildings being used for um, the, as, as event centers essentially as you know for, for weddings and, and such. 
um, the intent was to differentiate between a, a working agricultural building, which includes processing wine, um, and, and uh, a room that would be uh, a place to welcome in um, you know non non ag people to uh, for events. So that that was specific language that was recommended by the Ag Advisory Committee, which is why it's included in, in the definition. Very good, but nothing precludes us from striking it at this point, is that correct? Uh, I'm sorry, could you repeat Nothing that? precludes us from striking that at this point. The, the Ag Committee, with all due respect, is not elected to the Board of Supervisors. The Ag Committee may not know that they have barrel tasting events where they go into exactly what we described and have a barrel tasting event just once in a while and it feels like an unintended consequence or maybe an intended consequence of this sentence is to eliminate that and and that's what I'm trying to guard against how can we protect what's already happening and what might want to happen on a one-time basis it happens all over Napa County where people come in and have events and go have a tour of the facility and how wine is made and all of that stuff, where it's stored, and it feels like we're going to tell them they can't do that here. And that's what I'm trying to avoid. And so we can, we can take this out with all due respect to the Ag Committee and all the people that weighed in on this. I'm not sure that they explored the unintended consequences of what may happen as a result. So unless I hear that those events are going to continue to be, notwithstanding what this says, that it's not intended to exclude those things from happening, to exclude private residents from using their facilities for their own personal use, unless it ex we clarify that, I don't see why I would want to approve this. I don't, um, not supportive of that unless we can get, get clarity. Uh, Supervisor, you are correct that the, the final decision-making authority rests with your board in the adoption of an ordinance. There, there are um, the Ag Advisory Board is just that they are advisory and they make recommendations to your board. Um, I will just say that there is a caveat to that, and that is if you make a major change um, to a definition, then there is the potential that it may need to return to the Planning Commission for a further recommendation. Um, I don't, I don't think that the deletion of that final phrase would, would qualify. It is certainly something the Planning Commission has considered, and so I don't think you would have to return um, this item to them. I, I do want to uh, express a note of caution, and, and I think you, you that um, this particular issue surrounding what some might see as the incidental use of agricultural facilities of buildings for uh, social events is a is a topic of a an ongoing matter in litigation that the county is is defending, and so I suspect um, you know it, it, you need to be somewhat cautious about just the mere deletion of this phrase. Do you or do you want to say you know it shouldn't happen for these events except in on an, in, on an incidental basis, and then how do we enforce that? So um, if if you're considering making that change, it may be that we want to. Um, ask that you return this to staff for us to look at further um, refining of the of the definition as opposed to merely striking it and perhaps we can come up with something that would satisfy your concerns um, as opposed to just a, a mere deletion but if that is your desire of course ultimately it is your board that makes that decision 
I think also that the uh, the language was specifically written to mention public events. I think that your private events are, wouldn't be affected under this. Well, uh, the way it's event. written, um, um, I'll just paraphrase. Shall it be a place used by the public or for my own personal social events? The, 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 unless you change it to say used by the public for public social events, I guess that's more yeah. clear. But it, it's, it says it cannot be used by the public or for social events, meaning my own personal social events. Yeah. Grammatically, I'm, it seems to me. I, and this is where yeah. words are important. And, no, you're right. And shalls and maybes are mm -hmm. tricky. But well, I, I think that one of the one of the concerns, for example, if I have an agricultural building that I've got pulled a building permit for a certain occupancy rating for that type of use, let's say it's a barrel room or or where I process grapes, that's going to have a different rating than, for example, if I I get a permit for a, a wedding venue. And so I think the the main thing is that you the the purpose of that definition is not to is to prohibit somebody using an agricultural building that has all the permits related to agriculture buildings for as a commercial operation where you're regularly having wedding events or any you know, sort of you know social gatherings because that's a that's a different type of building from the the building code perspective so I think that um, you know when it comes to private events this definition doesn't necessarily touch that because it's not part of the um, it's not what it's trying to regulate necessarily but it's when you start having those uh, those facilities those buildings open to the public for commercial commercial gain, I think that would be that would be a conflict of what the intent of the definition is. So, barrel tasting weekend in wine country happens every year, not allowable under what yeah. I see for the, which is why I mm -hmm. feel just striking. It would be easy to do an easy way to preserve that because otherwise, I see somebody coming in and saying, "Don't ever do barrel tasting weekend again," and I would not want to see that happen. Yeah, I mean, I think that it might benefit from from getting, you know, going back to the community and understanding the perspective of the, I'm, I was done. Go, go ahead and finish, and then we'll go to Supervisor Miley. No, I was going to say, I mean, I, I think that this is a, this has been a major issue of discussion at the Ag Advisory Community and in the general agricultural community as well. It seems like it could benefit from some additional discussion at the community level and for us to bring it back with some clarity. Did they ever discuss wine barrel tasting weekend at the? I don't know if the specific. They did not specifically. I, I don't recall them bringing up that specific type of social event. But I, I, I would add that Carl Wente, who is currently the chair of the Ag Advisory Committee and is the um, the vineyard position um, in the vineyard position of the committee is the one who actually came up with the recommended language. So uh, he, he may have had a different interpretation than, than you, but um, it's ultimately okay. your decision. Thank you. Supervisor Miley? Uh, yeah, I was going to say if there's some concern about the language, I'm not prepared to support changing language without having conferred with the Ag Commission and the Planning Commission. Because um, I just think, uh, I know the Ag, the Ag Commission's, Carl chairs the Ag Commission, right? Yes. Carl Wente. Mm -hmm. um, 
and, and we've got other subject matter experts on the Ag Commission, and this went through them, and maybe they didn't catch the, the nuance that Supervisor Halbert's talking about. I wouldn't feel comfortable making any changes here today without at least having their input on what Supervisor Halbert is speaking to to determine whether or not a change is necessary or whether or not it's not an issue at all. Um, so I, I, if, if we can't move forward with anything today because of this concern, I would rather um, either send it back or get a clarification from the Ag Commission as well as the Planning Commission around, that, around this particular matter. Because I don't want to second guess either of those bodies because I have a lot of respect for those for the the time people put into serving on both of those bodies, and this has been vetted through both of them, right? Both both mm -hmm. bodies, um, and, and then back to Dick Snyder's issue with uh, farm implements or farm equipment. I do think I don't think it hurts to put farm equipment and the, the word farm before equipment. I don't think that, and that would be a very minor um, addition. So I would also encourage us if we're going to hold off on this to maybe include. Uh, farm in front of equipment uh, as well, but I don't know uh, if what staff or council would recommend either sending it back or getting clarification from the Ag Commission and the Planning Commission around Supervisor Howard's concern, and then we could we could um, go forward. So I don't know how you want to um, what what you would suggest because we could obviously um, send it back uh, or we could just wait and have you bring it back to us with a, with further clarification. Everyone seems to be looking at me. Um, as to the addition of the word farm before equipment, that would be a very minor change and, I, and would not require, as long as the amendment were made prior to first reading, that could easily go forward today. Um, this uh, more ho holistic discussion about the final phrase and whether this is a commercial use or incidental private use or maybe it is a, an occasional um, commercial use. It needs probably needs a little more vetting, and um, likely should return to those two bodies because it is and would constitute, I believe, a material change okay. to the document at this time. Well, then I would suggest that we. Um, uh, what's where I'm? I'm trying to um, refer this back. That's, that's, that's we not could the, continue this. I don't think we're continuing. We're we're, we're going to send it back to them, right? That, that, again, that is your discuss, your your discretion. Uh, we certainly did, would want a complete public comment today, and then if you make a decision, if there's no motion for first reading, then you can direct staff to take it back, or you could continue, continue the item and ask staff to return with further information. But in order to tee it up properly, if, if uh, proposed revisions were made by or suggested by the advisory committee or the planning commission, we would have to re-notice it with the corrected language. So. Um, Referring it to those bodies might be the cleanest way. Okay, so I think if, I think probably what we want to do is refer it back to those bodies, remand it back to both the Planning Commission and the Act Commission for clarification around your 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 concern, as opposed to continuing it here. I, I think I understand the nuance of what County Council is suggesting. I think the continuance uh, wouldn't be as clean as referring it back and remanding it to those two bodies to take up your, your concern. I'm okay uh, uh, striking the sentence, but I, not, not I know that you don't like that. So we will uh, uh, refer this back and uh, have it returned to us 
after seeking the counsel of the Planning Commission and the Ag Advisory Commission. Is that right? So I think we need to uh, certainly complete any more additional public comment if there is any. I'm not sure if there is or not. And then your board can take that action on item 5D, which is the, that particular item. Well, I note that we have um, 5B to hear still. We've had public comment on these other items. But uh, the 5B is linked to 5A as an aggregated collapsed general plan amendment. And you, so you, you can take them out of sequence because you've received the presentation on 5A and D, which are the combined general plan for the ballot measure as well as the associated ordinance. Um, once you complete public comment because you've taken it on a 5A and D, then you, you can choose to, to uh, take action on 5D if that's or, or you can take them in sequence. It's it's uh, certainly either way is allowable. Well, I think we just referred 5D back for more discussion to committees. So you need a motion on that item and have you complete, is there any additional public comment? There's more public comment yet to be had. When we close public comment, when we ask for members of the public to comment, there were no more hands raised. Okay, then, then you, uh, I'm sorry. But if we have more hands raised on this item, I'm not opposed to hearing it. I just wanna be clear about what we've done already. I don't believe you've taken formal action yet because there's been no motion. Correct. Members of the public want to comment. They can. Um, <clears throat> this is Dick Schneider again. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to comment. Supervisor Halbert, um, I didn't mention anything about this definition, this part of the definition, the one that you're concerned about the first time because it hadn't been brought up until after the initial close of public comment. Uh, so I want to make two points for the board to consider. One, there's still the 0.01 FAR that's uh, for non-residential buildings that will be available for social events and other kinds of public events. This is just for the agricultural building portion that the social events wouldn't um, be allowed in. The second thing is that the CEQA addendum that analyzed the environmental impacts of this, uh, of these total amendments included the definition that the Ag Advisory Committee had proposed. Um, it was a very thorough CEQA addendum and it didn't look into social events transportation impacts, other kinds of impacts. I think that that CEQA addendum is going to have to be reviewed again um, if you're going to expand now the types of uses that can occur inside these much larger agricultural buildings. Thank you. Kelly, you're on the line. Yeah, this uh, this issue, I'm kind of familiar with it. And so are um, the lawyers for our uh, environmental group. Um, it turns out that your lawyer has been arguing that um, the uh, landowner, the uh, event hall owners, the banquet hall owners, people who own a barn with, with chandeliers, with space for 400 people, um, that those people, as long as they do non-commercial, you know, personal, private, familial events, it's fine. Also, uh, Mr. Lopez seems to have that opinion. So, you know, this is really an, an, uh, an, an issue that they've raised. You, uh, Ms. Weddell, Ms., uh, Mr. Lopez, um, some of your staffers have raised this issue. It's, uh, it's really been, been firmly uh, etched in, in stone. 
And if you think about it from the point of view of zoning and of uh, Measure D, Measure D doesn't care about whether um, uh, wine, wine growers are making more profits uh, from their facility um, and whether those profits are coming through religious services, personal familial services, uh, friends' weddings, or whatever. It cares about the impact of those people on the land, on the roads, on the, uh, of the paving of, of the uh, open, uh, open agricultural fields the uh the visual impact all those things are are in there and it, it the socialness the personalness the familialness the religiosity of these people is wholly irrelevant wholly irrelevant and should be excluded anybody who says social event needs to have their mouth washed out because the point of these events it is not up to the county to judge their sociality social sociability socialness of these events. The county should only care about how these things impact the environment. Thank you. Based on public comment, if we have the original 0.01 FAR, and now we're changing it to 0.025, and if we institute this definition, I thought I heard a comment made that the point oh one FAR could still be used for events. And but if this is a definition and it applies to all ag buildings, would it not apply to any building already in existence and/or contemplated for future building? I mean, it seems to me that a definition is going to be applied across the board, not just to the new expanded condition. So I just want to get clarity around that. So the ballot measure did not change the availability of, um, of floor area ratios and spacing for non-residential structures. Historically, there had always been in, in um, Measure D uh, a clear delineation of either you're residential or you're not. And there was no further... Um, subsections of defining, well, you know, what about, you know, what is an ag building then something else? You know, what, what would it be? And, and so the interpretation as well, it's either residential or it's not. And so this change to measure D um, by the, the recent amendment now creates this third category. And it says you're residential, you're non-residential, or you're an ag building. And it creates an additional floor area ratio for those categories of buildings. And, and in large measure, you know, the question is which, um, which category does the particular structure fall into and how is it used and, and how, do, how, does it, how is it applied for and what's the zoning and, all, and the land designations and how does that work? So the, the adoption of an ordinance applies only on a going forward basis. It can only be effective and applied going forward. It doesn't look back in time. Um, that doesn't mean that, that existing ag buildings can't be treated and, and, and given that additional floor area ratio in the calculations to allow other ag buildings to be built or other um, non-residential buildings to fit within the new math that's created by this, this change. Um, I, I do agree with Mr. Schneider that we would need to be cautious regarding the CEQA analysis that was done for the definition as part of the, uh, the working up to get the ballot measure together. 
the definition was included and was studied. Um, and it probably depends upon what's the recommendation, if any, made by the Ag Advisory Committee of whether or not we have to do any further sequel evaluation to, to see if a, if a change is um, of such a nature that it would require more. So that, that is, I see, as an open issue. But yes, in fact, the, the .01 FAR for non-residential buildings continues to exist and, and, and is, is available to property owners in, that, in the Measure B area. I hope that answered your question. So um, existing uses, um, if they comply with this definition, wouldn't be affected? Well, so a property owner could, you know, it's, it's all about have I reached the maximum limitations on, on my floor area ratio because that's what this change was all about. It was about FAR not intended to change uses or permitted uses. And so a, a property owner might say, I need to change the way I'm using this particular structure so that it meets the definition of an ag building so that I can take advantage of that additional FAR that's now been allowed. Or I may already exceed the available FAR for an ag building, and so I need to treat this as a non-residential structure that fits within that other remaining sort of other category. Um, so it, it is an available option to them, but it's all about how they use the structure and does it fit within one definition or does it fall within the sort of catch-all provision because it's not residential, it's not an ag building, it's a non-ag building. But the cautionary note, of course, is it still has to, that structure and the use of it still has to comply with the existing land use designation and the zoning for that particular area. Let me ask the question a different way. If we approve this today with the word farm in front of equipment, because that's a very minor change, but we leave everything else as is, if we had in the future a problem, we could always bring this definition back for changes. Um, you could, but you know it might require whatever your proposed amendment is. We, you know, or we might have to do CEQA, but you know that's always the case with a discretionary decision. So yes, you you always retain the ability to amend the zoning ordinance definitions. I don't want to create a solution to a problem that we might not have. A solution looking for a problem is never good. Um, but we have that available to us, and we have the clarification that existing .01 FAR uses are allowed. Um, another clarifying question is, people could just always get a, a permit. Is that right? If they wanted to do something, could they apply for a CUP for ongoing? Would they be able to apply for a one-day permit if needed? Yeah, we do have uh, administrative conditional use permits for um, one-day or limited duration type of events. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, but, the, you know, the specifics would matter, but generally, yes, we do have that available. All right. Um, for ongoing, you know, our event centers, what we call... Um, Winery-related uses has to be connected to a a, a winery or brewery or um, oh. olive oil making facility. That's for public events, but for it, private yeah. events, for event centers, yes. Okay, but for private use of it of my facility, that's still allowable. We don't regulate that. Okay, very good, um, Supervisor Mallard. Why don't we go ahead and approve this without striking that last sentence? adding the word farm, would you be acceptable to that? I think you would. 
I'd be overjoyed. You'll be overjoyed. You want to make the well? Are we at a point to make a motion? No. You certainly can take up a motion on item 5D if you would like. I, I don't know whether you wanted to make that amendment first and then do first reading, but that would be certainly within your discretion to, to take that S sequence. Supervisor Miley knows how to make the motion for 5D. So 5D, so it's, uh, it's on the, um, the amendment. So yeah, I'd like to uh, include farm in front of um, the word farm in front of equipment. And with that minor change, if we could have the, the clerk. Uh, read the ordinance so you need to do a motion to uh, make the amendment and then okay. a motion after second okay first. all right so i move that we include the word farm in front of equipment in the definition i'll second the motion uh we'll roll call please supervisor tam aye President Miley? Yes. Supervisor Carson, excuse. Supervisor Halbert? Aye. Right now, I'd like to see if the clerk could read the ordinance. An ordinance amending Chapter 17.04 of the Alameda County Ordinance Code to add a definition in the zoning ordinance for agriculture buildings. Move the way to first reading of the ordinance and move forward the adoption of the ordinance. I'll second. Supervisor Tam? Aye. Supervisor President Miley? Yes. Supervisor Carson excused. Supervisor Halbert? Aye. We proceed then with five. What's the next item that we're going to see that's related to 5A? So 5B. Uh, 5B and then, then 5C would be the um, uh, resolution for both 5A and 5B as a, an aggregated action. Let's hear 5B. So application 5B is uh, PLN number 21254. Uh, applicant is George Siobhan representing Studio Architecture. This is a general plan amendment to change one existing parcel that's located in Castro Valley from the residential low density multifamily designation or RLM to the neighborhood commercial CN district. And this is, these are designations that exist in the Castro Valley general plan area. This change would allow the remodeling and reuse of an existing vacant building uh, for other neighborhood commercial uses. The location is 1446 A Street, um, Northwest corner, uh, Ruby Street, uh, this is in Castro Valley, and this project is exempt from the California Environmental Quality Act for existing facilities. Uh, just quickly, this project has been in the department for um, several months now. Uh, the, the existing, the, the previous use was a commercial use, but it had a residential designation going back many, many years. And so uh, the, the new owner wants to take this building and, and reuse it for commercial uses, which requires both changing the general plan and rezoning the property. So this is the first step, um, changing the general plan to allow commercial neighborhood uses. And in your packet, you'll find a set of drawings showing what the property owner wants to do with the new facility. It did go to the, to the Castro Valley MAC and they supported the project as did the planning commission. Um, but it does require your board to act on the general plan uh, today. And I believe that the uh, applicant is in the audience as well and um, had some comments that they wanted to make to the, to the board on their project. So with that, I'll wrap up and ask, uh, answer any questions that you may have. 
Any clarifying questions before we go to the applicant? Mm. I'd like to take a five minute recess if we could. Bio break, thank you. Recording in progress. We're going to reconvene the open session now. Would the clerk please call the roll? Supervisor Tam. Present. President Miley. Here. Supervisor Carson excused. Supervisor Halbert. Here. I note we finished the staff report and are now looking to the applicant who wishes to speak on behalf of their project. Is that right? Um, My understanding is that they do want to speak on, on, on this project. Very good. The, we'll recognize George Chavon. That's the applicant, correct? correct? Okay. Uh, hello, yeah. I'm, wondering, I'm, I'm just connecting with my client to see whether they want to speak. So I think uh, James is going to speak. He's the uh, property owner. This is James Kilpatrick, and it sounds like you guys can hear me. Yes. Um, so I'll keep it sh super short. I know you have a full agenda. Um, we want to express appreciation to Albert for guiding us through the process that seems to have made the details acceptable to uh, the MAC and the community at large, and hopefully to your board as well. Um, I would just note we had enthusiastic support from the MAC and the community. Um, but I want to keep my comments to a minimum and just express that we're available for any questions. Very good. Thank you. Any questions from uh, supervisors before we go to public comment on this item? Seeing none, is there public comment on this item? Please allow for two minutes of, uh, for the public to weigh in. Speaker, you're on the line. You have two minutes to speak. Marlena? Marlena, please unmute your mic. Matt, you're on the line. Hello again, uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak. Uh, this is in my neighborhood and I wanna say yes, please. Uh, we need more vibrant commercial uh, facilities like this, and uh, looking forward to seeing this uh, in our neighborhood and, uh, and patronizing this business. Thank you. And you're Hi, on the Hi, yeah, Ann Murray's here. Um, this, there's, there's huge problems uh, with this. While this building is historically commercial, and that's not the issue, the issue is that this building is historic and that this neighborhood is a SB 1000 priority population neighborhood that has been trod on repeatedly and consistently and has had no improvements. So where some, some uh, 
you know, a restaurant might be great. This is violating a lot of stuff. I don't, I'm not sure if we're on B or C um, cause it looks like B leads into C on the agenda. Um, this should not be eligible for the CEQA exemption. This use was not considered in the Castro Valley general plan EIR from 2008. The common sense exemption that's cited 15601B3 doesn't, doesn't qualify because it's not a use that it already has. Um, another, the 15300.2F, it doesn't qualify for that exemption because it is a historic resource. This is also on the, uh, the scenic, scenic route, um, the Board of Supervisors made multiple resolutions supporting the implementation of the scenic route, resolution 7454, uh, and I see I have 45 seconds, so I'll stop. The main problem with this is that we don't have any conditional approvals where the historic things will be recognized. Um, it's The site is currently in violation of multiple ordinances against permanent and non-permanent signs. Um, and for violating other safety issues, it's right now being used as a storage yard full of multiple shipping containers, which are blocking the driveways and ads offering storage when it's not allowed. You can't, I just don't think that you should approve violation on violation. Um, and uh, I don't have time to cite all of the ordinance numbers, um, but I, I do have them. And I'd be glad to speak on the next item as well. Ramona, you're on the line. Good afternoon. Thank you, board, for taking my comments. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, thank you. My name is Ramona Confer, area resident since 1970. I do not recommend approval of the proposed zoning adjustments located at 1446 A Street, northwest corner, west of Ruby Street, unincorporated area of Alameda County. This site is located at a riparian oak woodland and wildlife corridor that needs to be preserved, restored, and protected. Decision makers must adhere to the zoning law regulations and Castro Valley General Plan, update the plan and its maps with corrections on actual accessible park space. Decision makers have the duty to follow protections that are outlined for biologically sensitive habitats resources and corridors. This space is valuable as a nature preserve, not for development that is proposed. The citizens and the wildlife especially deserve that. Thank you. Ellie, you're on the line. Thank you. Um, you know, I think that the, the county here for this development uh, needs to take a little bit of a broader view and um, if you look like um, on the street, the main street right in front of this development, that's B, That's a county street. It's a main road. It's called A Street. And um, it's under the, the, the care and guidance and supervision and maintenance of the county public works agency. And, you know, all the businesses on this road, they need for that street to be like uh, working, like functional, like repaired. And that uh, San Lorenzo Creek, same thing, uh, right across the street, there's a creek called San Lorenzo Creek. And that thing needs to be properly engineered, properly designed, properly maintained so that the banks of the creek are stabilized and they don't destroy the road, which is what happened, what, two months ago? And since then, the, whole, the traffic is what? Half is stopped, half, the, half of the road is uh, blockaded. There's like uh, 
um, there's there's like no no traffic moving. You know, this this is um, a very bad thing, and it needs uh, the 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 public works agency. It's happening all around Castor Valley. When I say all around, I mean literally all around Castor Valley, encircling Castor Valley. You got road closures. Uh, I could name them off, but I won't. I've, I've mapped them for you. And um, yeah, these these road closures are really hurting residents. They're hurting developers like this developer you just heard. They're hurting um, uh, the 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 creek damage is 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 bad. They're hurting homeowners. The people have had their properties damaged when this creek destroyed their backyard or their or part of their house or part of their property. All this is really uh, this really has to be. Um, you know, can't just be swept under the rug. Got to get out there and fix it. Thank you. Marlena, you're on the line. Hello. Yes. Good morning. Thank you very much for this opportunity to speak, uh, Board of Supervisors. I would like to open up with a quote from the Ohlone peoples, the tribe known as the Confederated Villages of Lashon, who specifically stated that when you approve development, you perpetuate the genocide of their people. And they spoke at every level of the hearing process when it came to Ruby Meadow, the adjacent property to where this proposal is at, this agenda item. And so uh, please keep in mind that as indigenous peoples, we have a, a view and understanding of being rooted to the earth with the earth, not living on the earth or from the earth, but with the earth. And that means respect all of our relatives, respecting the ant as much as people, respecting the trees as much as the water, as much as every insect, every winged being, every one, not things. There's no thing. These are living beings. And we, when we don't follow these ways, there are consequences to pay. And that's what's happening now. We have gone past the tipping point the choice was made to not respect the life of all living beings and instead continue this materialistic world of humans being at the top, the anthropocentric viewpoint. And now we are all facing the consequences. There's no turning back. Mother Earth, she is the victor, has always been the victor. And so she will take the land back to be hers. And only for those who remember the instructions and that are, those are the innocent beings, the deer, all the migratory species on this corridor right here. They are the victors because they are the ones who I am speaking for. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, is there any more comments from staff um, relating to public comment? Uh, just that we we did route the project to the the county's uh, historic commission and they approved the project supported it there was one they wanted to see a plaque on the building uh, commemorating the history of the building so the applicant um, will be required to do that as part of their rezoning very good supervisor Miley yes thank you um, th uh, this this part of Castro Valley we're looking to do a specific plan for this part of Castro Valley right uh, are we referring to the southern Castro Valley specific plan area? No, I'm talking about south Castro Valley. This is southern Castro Valley. Yeah, yeah. Yes. We're looking to do a specific plan. Yes, yeah. we are. We are looking at that. Yes. And uh, this particular action today to amend the general plan, 
uh, staff is recommending we do this in advance of doing a specific plan? Correct. Okay. I just want to be clear on that because I don't want to put the uh, you know cart before the horse. So your staff's comfortable with it. The planning commission's comfortable with it. The MAC's comfortable with it. The historical uh, um, PRC, Park Recreation and Historical Advisory Committee, they're comfortable with it. Um, this particular amendment so that we so that this property owner can do something with his property that one building which has been an eyesore and yes. then as it relates to the greater southern castro valley of which this project is just one piece of we're looking to do a specific plan that that is correct we we're talking about one parcel today um and the uh south castro valley uh specific plan area i think is still um being defined, I, I'm mm -hmm. not really sure the limits of that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure this project is in it. But I don't think it also would preclude, a, you know, a, a, a rigorous uh, to, you know, to develop a specific plan for the greater area. And the and the application has been in the department for I want to say more than a year now. Um, uh, before I had heard anything about the South Castro Valley mm -hmm. specific plan, and the because uh, I do think. You know, some of the speakers are concerned with the greater area of this part of Castro Valley. They feel, feel it's been marginalized. It hasn't gotten the attention it deserves. And I know I've talked to staff about uh, looking at this to try to once again define the area and then go uh, to the MAC, of which you haven't done yet, because I know you're working on the downtown, but go to the MAC so that we can develop a specific plan just for this part of Castro Valley. Yes, it's under, that's understood. Okay, yeah. So um, knowing that that's going to be queued up at some point, I'm not sure when, uh, right now, today, we just want to deal with the general plan amendment for this property owner. That is correct, yes. And this property has been an eyesore? That's my understanding that they're having uh, multiple issues with uh, people breaking into the building and vandalism and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and this property uh, is proposed, the first floor would have two commercial uses a restaurant or cafe, an outdoor seating along the property frontage, and a rooftop open area uh, with outdoor uh, seating. I mean, I'm trying to understand what is the issue with trying to convert an eyesore into a, 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 a good use? And we're just talking about amending the specific plan, excuse me, amending the general plan just for this one particular parcel. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to contemplate in my own mind, mindset, uh, the opposition to just doing that for this particular piece of property. So I just wanted to kind of drill down on that because I don't know if, you know how familiar my colleagues are with the area and with what we're doing here, um, and that has gone through all of the bodies. And I, it's my district. I, know, I understand it pretty well. And then I do understand the greater area that we're going to do a specific plan to maybe get at some of the other concerns people have. But in this case... We're just trying to take one piece of property and enhance it. And I, and I don't think Mr. Kilpatrick, as far as I know, um, has done you know, anything uh, in terms of uh, making any um, Levine Act contributions to me. So I don't think there's any Levine Act um, uh, disclosures that need to take place here. I just think that this is, a, is, a, is an appropriate step to be taken. So I just wanted to kind of put all that out on the record. Very good. That's it. Care to uh, Supervisor Tan? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, this is probably more from my background. Um, 
So this is an existing building. We're talking about a general plan amendment to um, allow for uh, commercial use. And uh, there's been questions raised about the CEQA determination or exemption. And uh, we have a couple of categories. Um, the, the one that deals with existing facilities in 301 and one of the speakers raised the concerns about uh, listed species or species of concern. If this is an existing building, will the change affect any of those species? No, we don't believe that it will. I mean, there is, um, as you mentioned, a, a CEQA a, a categorical, categorical exemption for existing facilities, which we believe that this is. Um, this site doesn't directly, it's adjacent to the creek, but uh, there is an intervening parcel that uh, was a subject of another project a couple of years ago. There was a lot of concern about um, the, the environment on that particular building. Um, that project was approved by the board a couple of years ago. So I think there's there's a little confusion about uh, that project versus this one. This one is is a pretty it's a built up area. I mean the the site is for the most part 100% paved, um, and there isn't any habitat on the site uh, necessarily. There is habitat on an adjacent site, and that's being being addressed through a, another project another process. So I don't think there is there any. I think that the CEQA exemptions uh, are very appropriate in this particular case. Thank you. Very good. Um, is there a motion to approve? And just to clarify from our council, we would be approving A and C together or A and B? Um, item 5C is the action taken to approve the general plan amendments for both 5A and 5B. There is one resolution making both of those changes. So action on 5C will accommodate both of those in, in one item. If you have concerns about A or B, they are in separate sections of the resolution, and so you have the ability to vote yes or no on section one or section two. Um, yeah. However, as you may have noticed, you only have three members here today, and your board does require an affirmative vote of three members to take action. So, so do we have to take action on 5B first? You, you do not have to take any action on 5A and 5B. Those are the, those are the reports. Okay. The action item is 5C. For both A and B. So if we wanted to proceed, we would make a motion on 5C? Correct. I'll entertain a motion to approve. Yeah, so I'd like, like to adopt the resolution um, that is put forth in 5C, making the general plan amendments in items 5A and 5B. I'll second the motion. Roll call vote, please. Supervisor Tam. Aye. President Miley. Aye. Supervisor Carson excused. Supervisor Halbert? Aye. Thank you very much. I guess we'll move on to item six, potential development and disposition of 20055 Redwood Road, Castro Valley, the old Castro Valley Library. Is there a brief staff we, report? We have Eileen Dalton that will be presenting, and she uh, is remote. So if uh, the clerk can bring her as a panelist. Now, for this item, your board had directed staff to do an assessment on the old Castro Valley Library for both affordable housing as well, for veterans as well as a veteran service center and uh, for that service space. And so Eileen and her team have been working with local veterans uh, on that assessment, and she'll give that presentation. Good afternoon. Nice to see you all and to um, bring to you this 
item that we've been discussing for quite some time. Um, and this might look familiar. We've discussed it at uh, TNP prior to this meeting. Um, before you today is a discussion about the disposition of the old, what I call it, old Castro Valley Library located at 20055 Redwood Road in Castro Valley. It is um, shown here in just a location map. You can see 580 Freeway, Castro Valley Boulevard. It's fairly close to downtown and then another aerial view of the sort of mid-century modern building that takes up most of the site that's about an acre. Um, many of you are familiar with the building, but it's um, been vacant since about 2009 when the new Castro Valley Library was constructed. Um, although the direction was given to CDA back in March uh, 10th, 2020, we've actually been working on the disposition of this building since, since the new library was opened and this building was vacated first um, as the redevelopment agency at the time we were looking at and did quite a lot of studies on the reuse of the building and with the dissolution of redevelopment all that that work got set aside and along with the potential funding to do a project there I went away um, and during that dissolution time the um, veterans uh, in Castro Valley have been very organized in proposing a use or reuse of the building for a veteran service center and advocated for that for quite a while. Um, and the conclusion of that adv advocacy was a um, board action or a board letter that came from GSA on March 10th, 2020, making some recommendations with the board did um, determine that the site should be considered for mixed use development to include affordable housing and veterans use on the site rather than an exclusive use. And that direction was provided at that meeting on March 10th. Um, just as an aside, because this has come up in the past at the discussion at the 2020 board meeting, the conversation or the discussion about um, renovation costs of the building um, that were um, assessed by GSA ranged from $1.5 to $9 million for renovation of the existing building, just, just for your information. So the board did direct CDA to pursue um, the use or reuse of the property for the development of both veterans um, affordable housing and veterans services. And so at the time, um, Chris Bazar asked me to take the, the lead on the project because we had just concluded a public-private partnership in Castro Valley. Um, so we convened uh, multiple meetings, five meetings with, with sort of the key veterans. Um, and we probably will have heard from them many times and maybe today. Um, also, Mike Martin, John McPartland, Casey Warner, Chuck Moore, Mark Crawford, Bob Swanson, and there was a few other folks involved um, from District 4. We had, um, and I'll go through what we talked about at those meetings, but we did, um, in addition to those meetings, we've then presented sort of our findings as we've come along to the Castro Valley MAC um, unincorporated in February, 2022, the Unincorporated Service Committee in April of 2022, and then to Transportation and Planning Subcommittee in July of 2022. Um, just a note that both the MAC, the Castro Valley MAC, and the Transportation and Planning Subcommittee made recommendations 
to keep the structure for use as a veteran services facility solely as for that use. Um, and then lastly, I wanted to mention, this is an update from the staff report because I, I failed to include it last time, is that the Parks and Recreation Historic Commission, PRHC, also recommended keeping the structure um, and in addition, placing it on both the counties and the California um, Register of Historic Buildings. In order to assess the old Castro Valley Library as a site for affordable housing, we engaged some experts to work with us and the veterans group. We hired a, an architecture firm that specializes in housing and affordable housing, Kava Masi. We engaged our economics firm, Strategic Economics, to, to study the reuse of the site, see if it was feasible for affordable housing and veteran services. And then lastly, we engaged um, a historic architecture firm, ARG, to prepare a historic resource evaluation because the building was over 50 years old. Um, these are summaries. And just if anybody's interested, we have the full reports that I've talked about, the uh, massing study from the architect, the economic study, and the historic resource analysis all on our website, um, from the Community Development Agency website under Economic and Civic Development. You can click on our bookshelf and find all those detailed reports. So the first thing that, that our architect did was, um, first of all, take a look at the site, um, determine that the only way to fit housing on the site was to tear the building down. So there is no option where the existing library structure is maintained and something is built on or around it. It would all require the demolition of the building. And they looked at three options based on an RMX. It's a residential mixed density um, zoning, which is the zoning that surrounds the library and came up with three three options, uh, 28 units, 36 units, and 52 units. Um, the size of the buildings obviously increase with the number of units, starting with a low of three to four stories all the way up to option three, the 52 units being five to six stories. All of the options included 7,470 square feet of veterans serving space that would be on the ground floor. And we came up with that number by working with the veterans group on um, what they would wanna be doing in the space. And then there'd be 40, 40 parking spaces that would be shared amongst all of the options. Um, sort of sort of small, medium and large density. Um, here's some images of sort of what that massing would look like on the site with um, option one being the lowest, two the middle, and three the highest. And you can see the gray, gray sort of band in the front on Redwood Road would represents the ground floor um, veteran space and then stacked stories of uh, residential on top. Um, as I said, five or six stories, you'll notice that buildings around the site are, are maximum two-story apartment buildings. So this, this building is pretty massive in the scale of the neighborhood. And then the parking would be underneath the residential units that would be stacked over them in the, the back part of the site. 
So the the question that was asked was first first of all because there was a lot of discussion with the veterans who had architects on their team was would something fit on the site and I think our massing study shows that yes that we could we could fit a development on the site that could accommodate veteran service uses and and housing units um, ranging from you know, three stories which maybe fits better with the neighborhood all the way up to five six stories which is quite large. Um, then we asked our um, our economic consultant to reach out to our to affordable housing developers in the Bay Area to gauge interest in the site. Um, this was a test to see that hey, with these these three massing studies, would would you reply to an RFP that the county issued one to do a project on this site? And if you would reply, what what option would look the um, the most interesting to an affordable housing developer? And so we did have several affordable housing developers express interest and in that they would respond to an RFP based on those. Um, the, the results of this feasibility study really indicate that the, develop, the affordable housing developers were most interested in, in the 52 unit largest project because that's sort of a sweet spot for development. You have to have um, you know, a certain number of units to make it efficient for the developer to, to pursue operating and less expensive to build on a per unit basis. We had some interest on sort of the middling, the middle, middle uh, 36 unit development um, where they, some folks suggested it might be a work as a permanent supportive housing project targeting extremely low veterans, but it would be again, a smaller site with a lot of um, expensive on-site supportive services, and then the lowest density option didn't didn't seem to feel very very uh, feasible. Um, so then we we visited with the PRHC a few times, and um, we agreed to conduct a historic resource analysis based on the age of the building, um, and we used ARG, which is a very noted. Um, architectural historic firm to do a study. And again, it's on our website, very long, but the, the short, short answer to this question was that they um, recommended or stated that they felt the building was eligible for the California Historic Register. Um, the, and not for the National Register, but for the California Register. So just for that reason, for them de declaring it under the historic resource analysis, it is considered a historic resource under CEQA, even if it never goes to the steps of being placed on the register. We now have to consider it as though it was on the register and deal with, with that fact as part of the any future CEQA analysis. So with, with that information, um, if we were to move forward with a project that required its demolition, the Board of Supervisors would need to consider certification of an EIR and adoption of a mitigation monitoring and reporting program and a, potentially a statement of overriding considerations before approving demolition of the building and a new project for affordable housing. So there is that CEQA step that would, would be required to, um, to tear down a historic resource. So um, this is just what the study looks like if you're looking for it on our website. It's, it was noted that it's, it was constructed in 1962. It has um, 
the this mid-century modern style, and they go through quite a detailed study of why they felt it was eligible for the California Register. Um, so in addition to the other uh, factors that I've discussed, there's um, also the, the Surplus Lands Act that the county would have to comply with. Um, so in order to advance the direction that we received back in March of 2020, um, to advance a project on the site, the Surplus Lands Act exemption um, could be utilized to allow the board to designate the property as surplus, ex surplus exempt, which um, by using this exemption, we could do a, an RFP for affordable housing and could lead to a, uh, an agreement that would allow for this site to be used for affordable housing. But in any event, we'd have to deal with the Surplus Lands Act. And um, so just to note the CEQA land use considerations, um, the historic resource evaluation concluded that the, you know, anything other than preserving the building would require a preparation of a full EIR, um, which is, is costly and time consuming. Um, the property is also currently zoned for public facilities. So reuse of the property for um, the proposed affordable development, housing development would trigger a rezoning and a general plan amendment. And I also wanted to mention since our last meeting that the site is currently not identified as a housing element site on our current draft plan. Um, so those are those are all the, the factors that we looked at and all the issues that sort of came to the surface as we studied the reuse of the site. And so based on the board's direction um, from March of 2020, uh, we wanted to bring forward a recommendation that was consistent with that original recommendation and then also offer some alternatives because they've been discussed as, as the meetings have gone along. Um, but if we were to go forward pursuant to the original recommendation, sort of before we learned all this information, the board um, could designate the property at a separate meeting, not, not obviously not today, but at a, at a separate meeting, the board could designate the property as surplus exempt, which would allow us to, to conduct um, an RFP for the property for affordable housing and that 7,400 square feet of, of space for veteran services. Um, alternatives to that recommendation that we wanted to include <clears throat> is to kind of recognize the, the complications around what we found out during our feasibility analysis and postpone an RFP until we can find funding and a plan forward to, to deal with both um, the EIR, which is again, costly and time consuming, um, deal with the general plan amendment and the rezoning. And by doing these two things in advance of an RFP it would make it more likely someone would respond to an RFP for, for this project to have those matters uh, attended to. And then secondly, uh, there is also no currently no local match. There's no measure A1 funds available at this point in time and not having a local match or some identified funding just adds another sort of level, level of uncertainty as to how the project might go forward as most of projects as we've seen require uh, a local match. And then the last alternative 
is to you know just status quo keep the building as a county as a county facility um, or for a veterans use um, under the county's umbrella as a county property. So I sorry that was a lot, but that concludes my presentation and I'm happy to answer any questions. Any questions before we move to public comment? Supervisor Miley. Uh, yes, I, I don't know if I necessarily have questions, but I do want to at least embellish on a few things um, for the benefit of a supervisor uh, Tam, because I think this is the first time hearing this. I think Supervisor Halbert's heard it in um, committee. But um, uh, this this is located in, in District 4, and the veterans have collected thousands of signatures from the community to retain this building for veteran services, uh, thousands of signatures. Um, I think there's universal support that this building be maintained for veteran services in Castro Valley. It was the, the wisdom of the Board of Supervisors directing staff to pursue it for veteran housing and um, veteran services. I didn't support that direction. I support the direction of my constituents in Castro Valley um, and universally, and I'm not saying 100% of the constituency in Castro Valley um, supports this being a veterans facility, but I want to say universally, the community of Castro Valley supports this building being preserved for veteran services um, and not being vet uh, developed for housing and veteran services as the board uh, directed staff. The uh, staff's been working down that path only because the board directed staff to go down that path, as opposed to going down the path of trying to figure out how we could make this facility into a veterans um, um, service facility. If the board had voted to go down that path, we might be uh, have achieved that that goal by now. But that wasn't direction given. So Eileen, through our economic and civil development to, uh, civic development department and the Community Development Agency have been working to achieve uh, housing there. And when you look at the, the ability to achieve housing there, um, for an affordable housing project to go there, you're going to have to squeeze in a lot of units, a lot of units. You know, Eileen mentioned about 52. Um, and, you know, if we go through um, surplus property, you know, we could find out whether or not a developer, affordable housing developer, would, consi would consider it. Um, I think it... It's if we go down that road, I know the community of Castro Valley is going to continue to oppose uh, uh, the board taking that that action. Um, and as Eileen pointed out, this is not one of the sites that's been identified in the housing element uh, that's going to come forward from staff in the future to, re to reach arena numbers. It's this isn't a site that's going to be considered for that. We do have other locations that we're looking at for veterans housing in Castro Valley. So that wasn't mentioned, but that is also um, being contemplated other locations in Castro Valley for veterans housing. Uh, and it's not as though uh, the community doesn't support uh, affordable housing and doesn't support a, uh, veterans housing. They just don't want it on this site. Uh, they want this building maintained for veteran services. Uh, people feel very strongly about this, the old Castro Valley Library, because they really feel that um, the county was able to secure this um, through a process that included um, the Castro Valley community over the course of time, and then eventually, you know, uh, building the new Castro Valley Library down the street. So 
maintaining this site um, has been something that has been almost, as I said, universal in Castro Valley. They don't want to see the building torn down. They don't want to go down that road. Um, and anything to a general plan amendment, anything um, that would require uh, that building being torn down and modified will raise significant opposition in Castro Valley. Um, and it wasn't until Eileen pointed out um, as a result of this process that we also found out that uh, the building has historical significance as well. Uh, and folks want it to be preserved in that sense. And then if we do want to tear it down, then we've got to go through the whole process of the historical piece of which, you know, I, I, you know people are going to be very uh, opposed to any action that's taken, tear it down for, because of historical purposes. So I'm just here to say unequivocally that I really feel we should scrap the idea of this being used as veterans housing and we should be directing staff to work with the community to uh, maintain the Castro Valley Library and turn it into um, a facility for ve veteran services. Um, I don't know if um, if you recall, but you know, Castro Valley community, they were alarmed by um, uh, the, this was before my time, the fact that there was going to be a sign in Castro Valley, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people opposed the canoe sign in Castro Valley. Um, when there was other actions uh, around Castro Valley uh, being part of the community, being included in the Eden General Plan, there was hundreds and hundreds of people opposed to that. Um, there, uh, I, just, I just think the county is going to run into significant opposition from the Castro Valley community uniformly if we go down the road that uh, the board had um, approved uh, earlier on in 2020. So I don't know if, once again, if Supervisor Tam had all that, that context, and I wanted to provide that context because I know I couldn't provide it prior to today because um, it's gone to the committee with Supervisor Halbert, and so I, so I, I wouldn't violate the Brown Act. I couldn't really speak to you about all of that uh, uh, context. Uh, context. Uh, so I think that's all I want to say uh, at at the moment. And I and I, in a, and finally, I would say if Castro Valley were incorporated as a as a city, I'm pretty confident that they would be supporting that this be maintained, the site, the library be maintained, um, and be used for veteran services. Uh, so once again, there have been some actions that the board's taken. It's not often, but there have been some actions over the last few years that the board's taken that's been contrary to the will of the Castro Valley community. And this action was one of those actions. So I, I'm finished for the moment. Any qu other questions or comments? Um, thank you, um, President Miley, for that background. And thank you, um, Mr. Chairman. I, I do have some follow-up questions. Um, There seems this has uh, gone on for a while. So the building was vacated in 2009, and um, I know this site is not identified in our housing element as a potential site for housing for veterans or otherwise unhoused folks. Um, since 2009 and until 2020, when the board took an action that President Miley said was contrary to his constituents' desires. 
Has there been any house, affordable housing built? And then second, has there been housing built for veterans in that period since the board took action? And then now it's 13 years since, um, since the last housing element, right? Do you mean just in the Castro Valley area? In Castro Valley, particularly. Uh, I am not aware that there was any other veterans housing that was built in the Castro Valley area uh, with regard to um, other affordable housing. Uh, Ruby Street, for instance, is an example of one that, that's, that's coming in. Um, and then uh, there are others that have been in, in Ashland uh, that are um, off of East 14th in terms of uh, affordable housing, but, but not veterans housing. Specifically. Okay, and then um, Supervisor Miley mentioned that prospectively there will be veterans housing that will be um, cited in Castro Valley. Is that correct? Uh, and Supervisor Miley can speak to that more. I'm not aware uh, of the discussions that are occurring right now with regard to veterans housing in the immediate area. Okay. Uh, the the question I have pertains to the designation. So clearly there's going to be rezoning that's required, uh, uh, CEQA documentation, there's the historic nature which falls under a specific uh, determined or exemption category or non-category. Um, if we were to use this for a veteran service center and keep the building as is, uh, would any of that designation, it's a, you know, it's really a 60-year-old building. I, I live in a house that's older than that. But the, would that uh, designation um, have any effect on the ability to renovate it for the purposes that the veterans want? I'll defer to Eileen can, for all the discussions. Yeah, I can, I can attempt to. Um, we did talk with uh, ARG about that. And with the building, there's some key um, elements of the building that are identified in the historic resource evaluation, um, but it would allow for the reuse of the building, I think, comfortably, sort of similar to our experience with the, um, the Lorenzo Theater in San Lorenzo. We're able to maintain the historic designation while also updating the building to modern standards to be able to use it and make it functional. So I think the answer is, long answer is yes, we could reuse the building without, I think, within the context of the historic designation. Okay, that's helpful. Um, this is a county building. Um, it was vacated in 2009. Uh, how much does it cost the county now to maintain that building and make sure it, it doesn't deteriorate? Oh, good question. Um, the I'm gonna unless maybe somebody from GSA is listening in. The building is you know is fenced and there has been some vandalism. I know that they've had to go out and fix the fence and clear clear the site. And it's not definitely not great to have a vacant building. My recollection is that when it was actively part of a, the county's you know, there were some studies done from GSA that how much it would cost to maintain the building when it was active. It was, I think, in the hundred thousand dollar range. But as for what it costs now, I'm I'm not I couldn't speak to that. 
other than it does require maintenance and, and monitoring. Okay. Um, in my experience with uh, Veterans Memorial buildings, whether it's in Alameda or San Leandro, uh, I'll, I'll, and th those buildings are a lot older, uh, frankly, there's a, a significant uh, maintenance cost. Um, in the proposal to turn it into a veteran service center, um, what what's the uh, the thinking there? Is is it uh, what a veterans group or would the federal government through the Veterans Administration help um, support the the maintenance? Are they willing to purchase the building? And does it require a surplus property exemption if they were to purchase the building? And uh, similarly, if a nonprofit were to purchase the building or lease the building from us, and would they be responsible for the renovation for the the purposes, uh, or would the programs there be paid for by the nonprofit, or would we as a county provide some of those services? I'm sorry, that's a lot of questions, isn't it? <laughs> really good questions, and we've thought thought about a lot of them, but my work um, really just focused on the reuse of the site for the affordable housing. And we didn't go down the path of what would it look like if the building was, um, we never had a chance to go down that path because we got this other direction. So I think that all needs to be considered. And I know that the veterans group would, who are listening in have thought this through and have ideas about how they'd have to do it. And then I think I would defer to, to county council too about how to, how to work on the Surplus Lands Act component. Um, for the reuse, because there would be some steps um, to consider, um, but those are all oh, those are all good questions and would have to be answered. I should have mentioned that during the during the presentation that even the the affordable housing developers had a lot of those same questions: who would be leasing our ground floor space? Who would be maintaining it? You know, who who would that organization be? Um, and then the veterans group does have a nonprofit. I think their their plan. I'll let them speak to it. Would involve, um, you know, ra raising money, maintaining the space, and operating the building. A supervisor, to respond to at least a portion of your questions regarding the Surplus Lands Act, um, there is an exemption under the Surplus Lands Act for uh, direct transfers between governmental entities. So if the, the decision were made by uh, the federal government or a branch or arm of the federal government that they were prepared to take that on, uh, then there would an exemption likely would be available. Um, the question about uh, the sub question about uh, other nonprofits um, is a little more complicated because the California Surplus Lands Act envisions exemptions for use as affordable housing, parks, open space, and then other governmental uses. Um, so if a, a nonprofit were to come in and, and indicate that they wanted to do affordable housing, then that's a clear surplus exempt finding that could be made if they're coming in and saying, you know, we're going to use it for uh, veteran services that may or may not qualify and have to do further research on that issue. Uh, in the staff report, uh, you mentioned, or, or staff had mentioned that the um, first right of refusal goes to the municipalities or local districts, uh, and that would apply to the federal government as well. I believe it would, but we would have to, anything we do, we would have to run through the state housing and community development agency, and they would either affirm our accuracy or they would reject it, and then we would have to start over. We, of course, would check their guidelines 
and likely have an informal conversation with them before the board took action if it were looking at uh, transferring it to the federal government. Okay. Uh, Eileen, um, have you heard whether there's an interest by the federal government to um, purchase or take over or provide sort of navigation services for veterans at this location? I have not. The sort of the pre-work that was happening before the board took action in 2020 was um, some discussion about creating, you know, the county does manage veterans memorial halls. So there was some sort of thinking around that. Um, there has also been some discussion with the county's veterans service offices that are currently located in Oakland. Um, we did have a conversation with that group who said you know, they'd they'd stay where they are in the Eastmont mall building, but would provide county services at a new location. Um, so that's as far as the conversation went, it was that there would be county staff available to provide services at this location in Castro Valley, should it come, come to be. But um, I'm not aware of a uh, interest or process where we would transfer it to the federal government. I think the intention was to operate operate veteran services as as a kind of governmental county function in some way if if we could so that we could operate it with a nonprofit in that location and meet the surplus lands act but as andrea mentioned there's some nuances to that uh, because of the surplus land act and how it's changed over the last few years and Supervisor, if I might just add on, if the, de the decision is made to make this a county memorial building or VA memorial building, there's a separate statutory scheme that controls the uh, memorial buildings for Veterans Administration, um, there, mm -hmm. and, and it is a very discreet process. Um, and once a decision is made to do that, it is very difficult to unwind. Um, it does create a permanent county obligation to fund and maintain, um, with, with certain exceptions, but um, there are certain uh, significant budgetary implications to that, and I think GSA would be in a better position to report the costs and expenses related to the current memorial, VA memorial sites that we do operate. So. I see. Okay. Um, I, I appreciate those responses, and, and I also appreciate that that was not the uh, original direction that was given to staff uh, back in 2020. Um, which for some reason seems like a long time ago, but 2009 when the building got vacated was probably longer and you, we have a vacant building that is being vandalized, I'm hearing. Um, I'll wait for the speakers, um, particularly those from the veterans group that can talk more about their vision and their plans. Thank you. Supervisor Miley. Uh, yeah, I just want to uh, add a few things here. The veterans, and some of the speakers will talk about the, the thought around veterans housing and where, where we're contemplating it in Castro Valley. Um, uh, number two, yeah, there, there are any number of paths that we have contemplated exploring, but once again, because the board gave direction to staff to go in a certain direction, to thoroughly vet those paths, it, we were kind of stymied because the staff didn't have direction to do that. And we can't, I can't countermine, uh, counterman the uh, direction that staff was given by the Board of Supervisors. Um, thirdly, um, the, the, the building, though vacant, 
uh, for the new Cache Valley Library in 2009 didn't remain unused. The library is using it for storage for a number of years. Uh, they're storing books there. So it wasn't totally um, um, being just uh, uh, vacated and not being used. The new library, folks moved to the new library, and the old library is being used for storage for a while. Uh, uh, I can't recall how long. And then, um, see, there's one other thing. I think yeah, uh, the, the community of Castro Valley feels very strongly about this building that um, uh, they would find it, I think, a breach of the, of, of the public trust to their community were the board not to listen to uh, their desires. And that's kind of the, the nicest way I could articulate this uh, at the moment. And then the one other thing I just want to say, I, um, just for the benefit of the public, and I know uh, Chair Halbert knows this, both Chair Halbert and I have a LAFCO meeting in Dublin at 2 o'clock, so we're going to have to, you know, I, I don't know if this item will be uh, completed before we're going to have to leave, so we might have to continue this item. So I just want to make sure that everyone's aware of that because both of us need to leave at probably 1.30 at the latest. Yes, at the latest. My comments are that I believe the residents of Castro Valley um, deserve the community assets that uh, any other incorporated community would have. It's incumbent upon us to provide that, veteran services um, included. Uh, I'm hearing that we can achieve our housing element without housing on this site. That's what I believe I've heard. And so while we have the obligation to provide services, which, as I mentioned, the residents of Castro Valley deserve, we also have the responsibility of producing a housing element, and we can do that without this site. Um, I do think that, uh, so I think, if anything, one action we can provide, at least direction, uh, uh, perhaps, is to drop the idea of a four-story affordable housing project and look towards how we can make this a veteran's services project, notwithstanding the need for under, uh, the funding for that, the uh, rehab to the building to make it compliant uh, to that, the application for historical designation and all of the things that and we're not ready to do that today. We can provide direction to go that route, a slight detour from what was given direction earlier, basically changing that direction. We can do that today, but we don't have the ability to turn it into something else. We can just provide that direction, I think, and I'm, and I'm happy to uh, support that. Um, so with that said, uh, let's have public comment. I note we also have public comment on items not on the agenda to still do today, or we could have to continue that maybe. I don't know. But um, let's make uh, haste for public comment. Two minutes for every speaker, please. Matt, you're on the line. Hey, good afternoon. Uh, so, uh, speaking as a as a former Army service member and a resident of Castro Valley, uh, imagine if you will uh, that the city of Alameda had a beloved civic building that the taxpayers of of uh, Alameda had uh, um, you know taxed themselves to build specifically, which is what Castro Valley did with this. This this building was built. Uh, with a bond that Castro Valleyans passed uh, on themselves, and that uh, an outside entity wanted to come in and and uh, take it away from you, um, 
you know, you would feel like the occupied territory of Al- you know, of the city of Alameda or, or surrounding neighborhood city. Um, that's what's happened to us. You know, um, you know, Nate has done his his level best. I mean, Supervisor Miley has been a champion for us on this, and and for all the veterans who've, who've stood up for this uh, this beloved historic building in our in our community that uh, we want uh, put towards veteran services. Um, and, you know, and uh, this is no slight against staff because I know they were operating under direction. So uh, uh, when I say this, this is not a criticism um, that the amount of staff hours that the county has paid for, um, you know, over over the many years would have gone a long way towards rehabilitating this building. And it could have long been since been opened. Um, so I, I really, um, you know, I. I, I make a plea as a, as a uh, former service member and a resident of a community that has a, an extreme dearth of civic facilities uh, as an unincorporated community, that, that this be um, restored to us as a, as a place for the citizens of Castro Valley uh, and, and surrounding communities, uh, veterans to come in and, uh, you know, and, and uh, have their needs met. Um, you know, please, please preserve this building in our community. Thank you. Isabel, you're on the line. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's my daughter. Um, my name is Carlos Archuleta, and I'm a resident of Castro Valley. I'm going to be honest. My heart is a little bit heavy for the military, you know, and, and speaking with some of the members of the military, to have a place where it's low incomes, low income um, and services for the military on site, that's a home run for them. And let's be honest, when it comes to the military, you know, some gave a little, some gave a lot, you know, so we could give a little to, to contribute to that for their um, their transformation to when they come home, because a lot of times when the military, when they come home, they're coming home with, 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 with needs and we turn a blind eye to them. And I'm going to be honest, the NIMBYs in Castro Valley, where I live, they don't want low income housing, no matter what, no matter what it is, they're going to complain. And a lot of these people are homeowners. So they're biased. They don't want that in their backyard, you know, but when it comes to the rest of us that know what's going on, Hey man, to help out the military, let's stop romanticizing these old buildings. It must be nice to, to, to fantasize not doing nothing with some old building that's probably going to end up turning into a homeless encampment anyways. You know, instead, it's going to sit there for 30 years because of some idea that, you know, it's some fantasy luxury spot that we can never touch. No, we have real problems. We have a homeless crisis. And if you live anywhere near Grove, there's homeless people walking around everywhere. And unfortunately, some of them people are military. So we need to stop prioritizing these old buildings like there's some sacred relic. For us, 2023, we have a population explosion going on here. And even worse, we have a housing crisis. So bringing low-income uh, uh, housing for the military in Castro Valley, instead of making, let's be honest, most of these people, they got to get in a waiting list in like Deep East Oakland or Richmond or something. Let's get low-income housing right here in Castro Valley. And I'm a resident in Castro Valley on Grove. So I don't mind that right here in my backyard because that's better than them sleeping in my front yard, pissing and pooping everywhere. Thank you. Sandra, you're on the line. Hello, my name is Sandra Macias. I am a uh, resident of Castro Valley. I also live near Grove. I live near First Press and I see firsthand every single day the needs of our community. A lot of those folks are suffering from uh, mental mental health issues. They're suffering from post-traumatic stress. They need services and having an affordable housing uh, space that also has services is the best thing we could do. I have never heard 
um, affordable housing and Castro Valley where people weren't like, oh, yeah, of course we want affordable housing. Yes, just not there. It's always just not there. There's always that argument. And it doesn't matter what the project is. They're going to say the same thing. As the speaker before said, we are romanticizing these spaces. And that is a luxury we cannot afford. There is people like there's an atmospheric river coming. Where are all these people going to be? They're in the streets. And it's nice to have the kind of privilege to say, hey, oh, we want this beautiful building because it feels great and we want to put a plaque on it. But what about the people that are going to be out there this weekend living in the street and having nowhere to go? You, They don't have the privilege to worry about this romanticized version of an old library. I love libraries. I spent, I read like 100 books a year. I love libraries. But you know what else I love? is having a, a community where people are housed, where people are safe, where people are dry, where people can get services for their mental health issues. That is more important than some notion of an, of an old building that looks cool and people want to preserve. Let's be honest, people that come to these meetings that speak out have the time, education, and ability and connections to be able to speak out. Why don't we think about the people that don't have those things that actually do want affordable housing? So- Often we hear the voices of people that are privileged. Let's think about the people that don't have the privilege to come here in the middle of the day and talk about this issue. Thank you. Peter, you're on the line. Hi, thanks everyone. Um, before I begin, I wanna point out that I am speaking on my own behalf as a longtime Castro Valley resident who has advocated for preserving the library, not as a local elected official. Um, despite what the two previous callers um, had to say who are new residents in the area, the people of Castro Valley are overwhelmingly in favor of preserving the library. If you've gone to any of the MAC meetings, any of the local meetings, um, if as, as Supervisor Halbert has uh, come to understand, I really appreciate your comments uh, during the Transportation Planning Commission. And, and lately, uh, you actually seem to understand what's going on and great questions, Supervisor Tam. Uh, Supervisor Miley uh, understands completely that this site is special. It's not just another building. Um, as far as where uh, veteran housing would be, it's actually been envisioned at uh, Ruby Meadows. It was pointed out that that is one of the uh, uh, benefits about encouraging the housing development at Ruby Meadows. Same thing would happen at Trader Joe's. There's uh, several hundred housing units that are envisioned for there and for Rite Aid and for BART. All of those, despite what the two previous people said, are locations that are supported by the community, um, and they, it's because they work. I want to point out one other thing in addition to what everyone else, um, uh, what Matt Turner has said and what Supervisor Miley has said and what Supervisor Halbert has said. One other thing that I think needs to be emphasized, the reason why the community is so behind this is because we supported it. We self-taxed ourselves. I know of no other building in, in Alameda County that the local community were unincorporated back in the 60s. We self-taxed ourselves to pay for this building for community use. And I really hope that you guys consider that. Um, it's an uphill climb to build housing there. And as Eileen Dalton said, there's a lot of complications to build dense housing in this location. And uh, I don't understand how it would be considered fiscally responsible to build high density housing at this location when there are other ones that are much better. Uh, build 200 units at Trader Joe's or at, or at Rite Aid. No more speakers. Very good. Uh, let's bring it back for discussion. 
and uh, action. Supervisor Miley. I'll allow those three and then we'll um, end public comment. Thank you. Bob, you're on the line. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Bob Swanson here. I'm a veteran here in Castor Valley. Um, Mark Crawford was the chair of the MAC and he put together a group of contractors and they came out with a cost of uh, to repair this building of $398,000. And that was for the interior. The exterior, maybe another hundred to 200,000 for about $500,000, they figured we could have this building up and running with ADA compliance and everything. Uh, building's in good shape. Now, also too, as far as veterans housing goes, it was mentioned uh, about approximately 299 units have been thought of to be put in where uh, the uh, First Presbyterian Church is currently. And I talked to the minister there and he said 25% of the housing would be for veterans. And then we have the Ruby project with 72 units and 25 of them for, and that's already been approved, 25 of them for veterans. Um, this property here in Castro Valley that the library currently sits on would only have, if it was built with a 52 units and it would only have 42 parking spaces. Now, if you're going to have a 7,000 square foot meeting facility plus office space in there, where are these people going to park? This property is just too small for what they're proposing. And it's just not practical. And it's far better that the veterans in our community take over this building and, and repair it. Uh, that'll be up to the county on how they would want to transmit it to the, to the veterans. But they are ready and willing, and they've been wanting to do this for years. Thank you very much. Mark, you're on the line. Can you hear me? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. I just want to thank Eileen for her hard work on this. Um, Bob was right. Back in 2018, um, when I was on the MAC, I was chairing it. The MAC authorized me to do a study of the cost of renovating the inside of the building. Um, and we did bring in local contractors to do that. Bob was a little high on his number, though. We actually came in just under $200,000. And that was to do all the asbestos work on the building, all new flooring, uh, bring the lighting up to Title 24 standards, two new handicapped uh, compliant bathrooms, painting the building inside and out and replacing all the broken glass. Um, the only thing, the county really hasn't done anything as far as maintenance there since 2009. The, the roof is deteriorated, the paint is deteriorated, there's dry rot in quite a few locations. Um, but we we included fixing all the dry rot in our paint bits. We've got that covered. The veterans were told to create a, a, a nonprofit in order to have an entity to lease the building from the county back in 2018. They did do that. Uh, the veterans uh, are ready, willing, and able to raise that 200000 That's probably gone up a little bit. But all those bids I got were not bids. Those were market rate bids. They weren't bids for you know, discounting things for doing things for uh, or getting donations for a, a veterans facility there. So I think, you know, if, if the county fixed the roof and the parking lot and rented this building out to the to the veterans as is, uh, we can take it from there. 
and fix the building up. It's not, it doesn't have to be a burden. The, the veterans can handle the, the maintenance of the building, the operation of the building going forward. It's, it's no longer a burden on the county. The county is now responsibility for it. Uh, and like other speakers said, you know, this, this building is something that Castro Valley did for itself by taxing itself and building it. We grew up there, uh, the building's the same age as I am. And, you know, our kids grew up there. We're trying to save it for our community. Thank you. No more speakers. Very good. Thank you. Uh, Supervisor Miley, you care to make a motion? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, uh, appreciate the, the comments from all the speakers. Uh, and as one um, speaker pointed out, uh, those, the, the residents of Castro Valley, particularly the longtime residents of Castro Valley, um, are in unit, you know, lockstep in terms of what they'd like to see done in terms of preserving the old Castro Valley Library uh, for veterans um, facility. So uh, I, I'd like to, to move that the board um, um, retain the old Castro Valley Library uh, for a veteran services and go down that uh, that path as and rescind the uh, the the options uh, for um, housing on that particular uh, site. Would that include uh, investigating the costs uh, to renovate and the potential mm -hmm. services uh, that might be offered there, and who groups, what groups might uh, provide those services, and all of that? Yeah, the intent of my motion would be if we're going to look at preserving the building for veteran services that then we begin to take all the necessary steps to um, make that make that happen, which are a, a lot of steps, as you've pointed out, as uh, Supervisor Tams pointed out, there are many things that need to be undertaken. And I think even um, uh, Peter Rosen or Bob uh, Swanson pointed out that the county started this two, three years ago, <laughs> the building probably would be uh, um, um, prepared now for veteran services. but. Staff has given uh, other directions. Could we ask that uh, this would come back to us with uh, that direction in, say, six months or three months or a certain amount of months? Would you say come back to the full board or go to committee? Back here to committee. To, to committee? Mm, wherever it would go. Yeah, yeah. Not in three or four or five or ten years, but right. in three or four or five or six months. It would be my suggestion if, if there is a second to the motion and the motion is approved that we refer this to the Castro Valley MAC and let the MAC vet this through the process and then it'll come back to us eventually. But we've got the MAC in place and that's what they do. Okay, eventually. Very good. Well, that, that's it. We'll make it come back eventually. Thank you. Is there a second to that motion? I'll second it. Is that a clear motion? Were staff clear on it? To bring the uh, discussion of a veterans uh, building or conversion of that as a veterans building and bring it to the MAC for discussion. Uh, I think the motion is to rescind the idea of affordable housing, proceed with the idea of veteran services, take it to the MAC, bring it back eventually. Very good. That's yes, clear. That's clear. Does that sound good? Yes. All right. Any other comments or discussion or questions or anything else? Supervisor Tam, go ahead. Uh, there was a comment about um, how the residents of Castro Valley taxed themselves to pay for this building. 
it, it, Castro Valley is an unincorporated area, and usually taxes go to the entire county. So how, how was this configured back then, where they, just the residents in Castro Valley paid for that? Supervisor, I'm, I'm not certain, but it, if that is the case, then it would likely have been a library services district, and the members of the, or the, the property owners within that district would have paid uh, essentially taxes to support a library. But I, I don't know whether that's the case or not. I would have to research the issue to confirm it. Okay. Um, I, I appreciate that. Um, I still have a lot of questions. Uh, I don't have a problem with the direction of trying to get more information and have uh, this this concept of turning this into a veteran center uh, vetted through the Castle Valley MAC. Um, frankly, I, I don't really know why we would need to rescind a prior motion that the entire board made. So that's my discomfort with the um, with the motion on the floor. If I could provide some clarity, I believe um, that it's it's kind of an either or. It was a split vote. Three people wanted to see hundreds of units on here. It and wasn't a four-one vote, based no. on the history. Three-two, okay. I believe. It's a split, and in other way, it was either it was three-two. That the direction was to program this for a bunch of affordable housing units. We saw the schematics for them earlier, two levels, three levels, four levels. We saw the neighborhood around it. Um, that was a direction by the board. And uh, Castro Valley Mac uh, didn't like that, argued against it. T&P argued against it. We had significant community discussions. As Supervisor Miley mentioned, not 100% of people agree that it shouldn't be that, but predominance of Castro Valley residents just disagree with that direction. And so um, we either reaffirm that we should go with affordable housing or we rescind that direction, because otherwise staff's headed down that direction. We rescind that direction and go a different direction. It's kind of an either or. If we don't say to staff, stop pursuing affordable housing, then they're just going to continue down the path of developing what the Castro Valley Mac and the predominance of residents don't want to see is the way I see this. Okay. The staff report presented uh, looking at the, the option of building a veteran center. And don't get me wrong. I grew up in a military family. I'm on a military base in my city with 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 half of the island being uh, formally occupied by the federal government. But I, <clears throat> I'm comfortable moving in the direction of the alternative of looking at uh, a veteran center, uh, which what I'm hearing today is that staff came back after the uh, 2020 motion from the board majority, and they're basically telling us it's not feasible to build a, um, a high-density uh, project at that site without significant cost and uh, significant environmental uh, impact studies. Uh, is that accurate? Uh, I, I understand that, as well as you did for the presentation, that if we were going to pursue that path to make it more palatable or incentivize it for housing developers, we would have to go through a, 
a larger path of making the general plan uh, amendments, the rezonings, and and CEQA to make it more palatable for for affordable housing uh, developers to come in. And that was one of the suggestions on, on the alternative. So that is another way to move forward. And if I could just state, too, for further clarification, to make it palatable and to make it pencil for affordable housing, we have to tear down the library. And folks are unequivocally opposed to tearing that library down. And that's, I mean, that's why it's kind of like either or. Either we're going to go down that path, of which is going to be a lot of opposition, or we're going to go down the path to try to figure out how we're going to make this a veteran center and um, do all the associated work uh, to achieve that goal of it becoming a veterans uh, center. Okay. Can we um, modify the motion to go down the path of investigating and looking at the feasibility of building a veterans center there? And, and keep the other option as um, out there? Well, uh, basically, we, we came back with a study, and uh, we're, we're finding that it's not feasible for all the reasons mm -hmm. that staff and you have stated. I, I would just be much more comfortable with that motion. So let me just ask, make sure, uh, maybe make sure we can, with staff, can I go ahead and make a motion that we just explore this becoming a veteran center without having to rescind the other direction of uh, veterans housing? Because if I can, I'll, I'll do that to get, you know, three votes. But. Supervisor, the, the uh, um, approach of providing or requesting further information from staff um, would not require rescinding the prior direction, but, but that, that direction remains in place. So staff would basically um, be sort of putting a pin in this while they come back, they do further studies yeah. to give you more information about the alternatives and more information to inform your decision about whether to rescind your prior full board action um, to, to do affordable housing. Um, I, think, I think that would be permissible under the alternatives that were described in the, in the action today. Um, but if you are not going to do affordable housing, you do need to rescind that prior action at some point at in time. At some point, okay. And so, but it does not have to happen based on, if, okay. if the focus is um, provide us with more information about a different direction before I decide to go into mm -hmm. that direction, then that certainly is allowable okay. as well. So my motion, <laughs> I, I'll take back the, the former motion because I want to get the three votes. My motion would be that we uh, explore an opportunity to have a veteran center there and have that information brought back uh, to the Board of Supervisors so we can uh, take, you know, consider that in the context of, of, uh, of the other uh, path, which would be uh, uh, housing. Do you want to second that, Supervisor Tan? Is that considered a substitute motion or a revised motion? I, I believe that is a substitute motion. Okay, I will second the substitute motion. Roll call vote, please. Supervisor Tam? Aye. President Miley? Yes. Supervisor Carson excused. Supervisor Halbert? Aye. All right. Well, then that brings us to um, the item where we would hear public comment on items not on the agenda. Let's see. No, we have uh, item seven. Can we defer that? 
you, you may continue that to the next planning continue meeting. item seven to the next planning meeting item eight continue to the next planning meeting uh no report on closed session items because we didn't have it public input on items not on the agenda any speakers raise their hands not we'll wait a few seconds to see seeing none we are adjourned recording stopped <laughs>